Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land. This is Ben and Dan coming at you with another live episode of Juanced. Dan, how you doing? It's been a crazy week. Has it? Going into our third lockdown. Is it really a lockdown, though? I was driving over here, and everything looked wide friggin' open. You know what? I can't go to the gym. For me, that's all that matters, and it's a lockdown. Daniel, uh, our, our guest today is uh, Daniel Gordas, who I'll introduce uh, shortly. But, Daniel, wh- where are you coming at us from? You're in... Uh... I am in Jerusalem, in the Baca uh, neighborhood of Jerusalem. And I can tell you, I drove to Beit Zayed a couple of hours ago, uh, one time through the back and one time on the major highway, and it is not a lockdown. I mean, your, your gym may be closed. Uh, and I'm sorry about that. And I share in your pain, uh, but it is not a lockdown. It is a joke of a lockdown. It's, it's funny how we use these terms because uh, <clears throat> maybe you have this experience too. I'll, I'll tell my, my family or friends in the States, like we're going in for our third lockdown and all of a sudden in their mind, it's like, wait, so everyone's going to be locked in their homes. You're not going anywhere. You're going only to the supermarket. It's super serious. And I'm like, yeah, no, my kids are in gone. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm still going. I, to work. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the first lockdown was actually like that. The first lockdown, people were pretty serious. Second lockdown, a little bit less. And this one, I think, is um, not happening. I think we have lockdown fatigue. um, But also, and I think people feel like the the government is so incompetent that if they had done it right and told us to stay home, that would be one thing. But when they've screwed it up left and right and then tell you to stay home, people are like, nah. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Agreed. But, you know, with the vaccine rolling out, which is huge. Um, so, so for those, uh, listeners who are not in Israel, who don't read the news in Israel, we uh, have rolled out the vaccine. I think we've had a full week of the vaccine. Um, something like 15% of our elderly population, uh, has already been vaccinated. Uh, half a million people in all have already been vaccinated and we're we're a country of 9 million people. Um, they're they're at a pace of well over a hundred thousand a day. Uh, it's quite impressive. We are miles ahead of. Yeah, we uh, lead the world. Yeah. Uh, I read on the WHO that our our uh, per hundred we're va- we vaccinated already five per one hundred. The second country, uh, Dan, I told you earlier today where it is. It's it's surprising. Uh, our new our new partner in peace, Bahrain, is is yeah. number two. But there's a huge difference. I mean, we're we're at five people per hundred today. They're at like three point seven per hundred. And that's a country of a million right. people. Yeah. And then and then if you're wondering where the US is on that list, it's like they vaccinated zero point three six people out of every one hundred. So it's but uh it, it puts it puts a, a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you people you can see the end of the lockdown, you can feel it. Um, there's hope here. 
that maybe maybe by uh, by Pesach by Passover we can uh, hopefully be with our loved ones, um, which would be which would be wonderful. Um, so I think that's kind of where everyone's at. So the fact that I can't go to the gym combined with the uh, vaccination that that's the two main characteristics yeah. of this week. <laughs> well. We we hope that we get out of it soon. I don't know what else to say about it. It's it is it is a crazy week though. Um, but before we jump into this, episode. yeah, before we jump into this episode, two two brief messages. Um, as as everybody knows, we are a listener supported podcast. Uh, it takes a lot of time and hard work and energy and some money to put this thing together. So if you would like to be a, a supporter of the show, if you want to keep the magic going, if you want to keep it going. Uh, you can become a regular monthly contributor on Patreon or make a single uh, uh, one-time donation on our PayPal. Uh, or if your organization or company wants to become a sponsor, reach out to us. Uh, all the information is right there for you, easily accessed on www.juanced.com. Uh, one more message. One more quick announcement. So these times, more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting to an audience with creative and meaningful content. If you're looking to engage your community, We've got the perfect solution for you, introducing Juanced Live. Just like on the show, Benny and I, we can, uh, we can be engaging, we can be inquisitive, we can be witty in person, and uh, all of this talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from our guests doesn't end at the studio door. So if you're interested in hosting or having us host a live dedicated podcast with audience participation, virtual and hopefully soon in person, or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event, we have got you covered. Plus, with our extensive network and connection to a broad range of fascinating guests like the one we have on our show today on a range of topics, Juwants got you covered. For more information, go to our website, uh, com. And uh, Betty, why don't you introduce our guest today? So our guest today is Daniel Gordis. Uh, Dr. Daniel Gordis is Senior Vice President, Court Distinguished Fellow and Chair of the Core Curriculum Department at Shalem, Shalem College in Jerusalem, a Jewish thought leader and in-demand speaker on matters related to Israel, Israeli society, the challenges facing Israel, and the at times tested relationship between Israel and the Jewish diaspora. Dr. Gordis is a two-time winner of the National Jewish Book Award, first for Saving Israel, How the Jewish People Can Win a War That May Never End, and then for his Israel, a people, uh, how a people, sorry, a concise Israel, a concise history of a nation reborn. He is the author of numerous other books and a regular columnist for places like Bloomberg View, the Jerusalem Post, and a frequent contributor, contributor to the New York Times, the Times of Israel, and other leading news outlets. He's also the author of this more recent uh, 2018, I believe, uh, We Stand Divided, The Rift Between American Jews and Israel. Uh, I read it. Uh, it was a both a deep read and a fast read at the same time. And as as I was telling Daniel and Benny before the show, it's one of these books that I wish I would have written myself. It's excellent and very readable, and helps put the um, you know for those of us who care about the kind of tensions and the relation between Israel and the American Jewish community, helps put a lot of things into perspective. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and uh, we'll put a link up on our show notes on the website. Highly recommended for anyone who wants to get a deeper understanding of this topic. Daniel? Dan, you got some, you get, and some nice people wrote some very nice things about you on the back of the, uh, the book here. Amongst them, Michael Oren, Daniel, Daniel Shapiro, the former U.S. ambassador. Deborah Lipstadt, who's great. Love her. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the all-knowing, all-powerful Nathan Sharansky. 
So welcome to the show. Welcome to Juanced. Thanks a lot for having me. What, what have you been up to these days? What does, uh, what does Daniel Gordis do during uh, Corona times? Well, by the way, just got vaccinated last week. So that's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's actually kind of cool. It was an amazing experience. We can talk about it later if you want. But it said a lot about Israel, I thought, just the way they did it. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I, wor- I work at Shalem College and we are all online. But that actually makes it, I think, a little bit more complicated, not less complicated. So spending my days, um, you know, working at the college and writing a little bit and uh, doing what I normally do in non-COVID times, except not getting on airplanes. <laughs> what, what is Shalem College for those of our listeners who might not be aware? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Shalem College is Israel's first, but also its only liberal arts college. Now, people say, what do you mean? You can't take history and psychology and sociology at Hebrew University or Tel Aviv or anywhere else. Of course you can. Um, but the American system where everybody takes a whole array of courses, you get a wide exposure to a whole bunch of disciplines, and then you figure out what you want to major in, that doesn't really exist in Israel except for us. We're the only place that everybody, no matter what major they're in, takes, you know, Bible, Christianity, Islam, politics, philosophy, art, music, science, statistics, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go ahead and major. And our, the idea of the college is that the future of Israel is really going to be determined by the next generation of leadership. We can see that the current generation of leadership is slightly complex. (laughs) And uh, what we really need is people that care deeply about democracy, that care deeply about the Jewishness of this place, but have a sophisticated and nuanced, nuanced understanding of, uh, you know, what it means for a country to be a Jewish country, what makes it Jewish, um, what are the various ways of being democratic, what are the great ideas at the core of this experience. So we try to take Israel's really finest students each year, and we're kind of arm wrestling with the other very premier programs in Israel, student for student. Some they get, some we get. Uh, and it's really a, it's an exciting liberal arts program of the sort that people think about when they think about America's great colleges. But now it's in Israel. Why, why is it the, how, how does it happen to be that it's the only liberal arts college in Israel? Or, or why? You mean, why did nobody why, do it yeah. first? Why did Israel it's not? It's a great question. Either? Yeah, so the truth of the matter is, I mean, the um, the Council for Higher Education, Israel has a very centralized educational system, whereas in America, quite literally, you could go open up a college, you know, rent a farm somewhere in Idaho, call it a college, start teaching people, and then you apply for accreditation. And Trump if you University. get accreditation, great. That. What's that? Trump University. Uh, yeah, but you could even do a good one. You could <laughs> do one that people actually study something. Um, I don't Did he ever get accredited, actually? I'm not even sure. No, I don't think he was accredited. Yeah, I would guess not. Um, but you can go to Idaho, you know, rent a farm, start teaching. You apply for accreditation. If you get it, great. You can put down that you're accredited by the whatever regional association it is. But if you don't get accredited, you can still keep teaching students. They just have to know that you're not accredited. Same thing with law schools, by the way. There's tons of non-accredited law schools in the States, and they charge students typically an arm and a leg because those are often students that didn't get into other kinds of places. Unfortunately, they have a very low rate of passing the bar, et cetera. But Israel has a very different system. It's all very centralized. You have to get accredited by the government before you can actually recruit your first student. So because the Council for Higher Education, which is the government's body that does all of this, is actually composed of people from the system, right? They are the ones that teach at Hebrew U, Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion, and they're extraordinarily smart people, but they were trained in Israel. They got their BA, MA, PhD in Israel, et cetera. Um, so they don't really see the need for it. And it, it was really swimming against the tide for quite a number of years to push our way through and to convince them that this was a good model 
Um, so we've been very successful at, you know, getting them on board and thankfully we're getting great students and we have great faculty and lots of support. Um, but it was an uphill battle. And I would imagine that most people that would have tried it before, uh, if they weren't as dogged as some of my colleagues and not me, but my, some of my colleagues just do not take no for an answer. It would, would have, it would have, it was a, it was a hard, hard thing to kind of hack through, but, um, now it's going great. I think that's a lot of things in Israel work is the bureaucracy can be very limiting, but if you have the perseverance and you're willing to push through it, eventually you will be able to, uh, to get it implemented. Um, you know, I noticed that I studied my, uh, uh, for my BA in the States, um, according to the model that, that you mentioned, took uh, two years of drinking. (laughs) No, no, I, I, uh, (laughs) I finished my first two years of school with the, with a three, eight, eight. Uh, GPA. I was, I was a very responsible student. What's that? Approximately. Approximately. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was a party school and I was very determined to do well. Um, but no, I, I remember I took two years of, of like you said, uh, history and philosophy and you know, comparative religion and all these kind of things before I even decided what my major was or before I even started focusing. And I noticed they don't do that here. So wh- where does that difference in approach come from? Why does the the Israeli university model, what is the Israeli university model and, and why do they differ in their approach? The Israeli university model is really the European university model. The, the people that founded this country and that founded Hebrew university and so forth were Germans. They were German Jews primarily over the course of time then Russians joined them. I don't mean the more recent Russian Aliyah, but the Russian Aliyah at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so the people that founded Israel's whole educational system came from Europe and they recreated what they knew. And what they knew was the European system. And the European system was actually based on this shocking premise, which is that high school can be an educational experience, right? That you could actually, from the ages of, you know, I don't know, 14 to 18, read real books and think real thoughts and write real papers. Um, There was an era, even in America, where that used to happen. There was an era, even in Israel, the 1950s, early 1960s, where that used to happen. So then, if you'd already had a really great broad education in high school, in the lycée in France or the gymnasium in Germany or whatever, well, then it made sense when you got to the university, you picked what you wanted to study and you focused on one discipline. So the way it works here, as you guys know very well, is that, you know, you want to be a chemistry major, you apply not to Hebrew University, you apply to the chemistry department at Hebrew University. Now, you might take a physics course, a biology course, a statistics course, but you're for sure not taking a history course or a philosophy course or whatever, you know, here and there, Po Basham, as we like to say in Israel, you might get one or two things that are free that you could fill in how you wanted. But fundamentally, what you're going to study is chemistry. Or if you want to study history, then that's what you'll do. But you won't know anything about science. And you won't know anything about economics. And you certainly won't take a music or an art course. And we think it creates a very different kind of a citizen. And uh, it's hard to imagine people running the country who don't appreciate the importance of culture in a, in a country and don't appreciate the it's complexity of history. It's actually not that hard to imagine. I think that's that's pretty much where we well, are. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, it's very easy to imagine. You don't even need to imagine it. No. But, you know, but it's hard to imagine a country flourishing that way. Let's put it that way. And um, we really what we're really about, what Shalem College is really about, is the future flourishing of the Jewish state. And everybody who cares about it attacks it from a specific vantage point. Obviously, no one institution or no one idea is going to safeguard the future of the Jewish state. Uh, But we do think that the education of its future leaders is critically important. Um, So, again, we try to find the, the very, very, very best students who are out there 
give them a really challenging education, and then they go do whatever they're going to do. But our bet is, and it's already proving true, is that they're going to eventually find their way back into leadership positions in society. It could be government, it could be journalism, it could be the security apparatus, it could be education, culture, anything. But those are all the kinds of areas that are going to shape the country that all three of us live in and that all three of us care about. So we're trying to safeguard the future of the country that your kids and my grandchildren are going to grow up in. Fantastic. What, how long has this been going on? How many students are there? We admitted our first class in 2013, which means that this is now the eighth cohort starting this year. There's about 200 students. We typically take about 50 per year. This year we took a little bit more. Some years we take a little bit less, but it's about 200 students and um, it'll grow eventually. But right now we're purposely keeping it at that level. Um, because we try to keep the class size very small. So the, the vast majority of classes are like discussions of maximally 22, 23 people. So we try to do it in cohorts of 25. So we wouldn't want to go up to 60 a year or 70. We want to go to 75 a year. So we want to be prepared for that. So right now that's where we're holding. We're adding a couple of majors, which I can't go into right now, but they're it's in all, the process. It's all undergrad? It's all undergrad at the, at the present time. It's all undergrad, yeah. Okay. Oh, fantastic. It's interesting. You said uh, at one point, at least, or ideally, they, you know, high school students could get a deep and serious education. Something I've noticed here, and maybe that's just kind of the places where, you know, the people I've met or the kind of people I served with uh, in the military, um, I, I've noticed that, you know, and there's a lot of criticism about the Israeli education system, but I've noticed the, the achievers here come out of high school uh, far more educated than I think American uh, high school students uh, do. And, and, you know, I went through the American high school system and I've only observed the Israeli system, but, but on the higher end of it, I think they do come out far more equipped and, and ready to go than, than let's say their American counterparts. Well, I think that's true in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly, as you say, if they're, if they're good students from good schools yeah. uh, and they're good students in those good schools, right. They, they, they definitely do get some very good background in a lot of things. There's certain things that even from the great schools, they just don't get, they don't write. For example, they don't write a single term paper in high school. I know about you guys when I went to high school, which was, you know, long before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eye. Um, you know, we wrote 30, 40 page papers for 11th grade history class or social studies or whatever it was. And um, it wasn't considered to be that onerous. And that was, by the way, on typewriters, <laughs> where if you made a mistake, you had to like ink it out. And if you went to the bottom of the page and you forgot to leave a margin, yeah, type the whole damn thing all over again. You so it's a very different old. kind of world. I have to say, oh, you... oh, believe me, believe me, I'm vaccinated, so you know I'm old. But I was going to say, <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to say it, you know, at the beginning when you said that, but it was like, wait a second, did he? Does he have like a hookup or something that he? he got no, in? no, no hookup. <laughs> just uh, you know, you live long enough, they eventually think, well, he's going to die if we don't give him the vaccine, so he give you the vaccine. <laughs> but um, so no, I went to high school. I graduated high school in '77. I'll spare you the math. I'm 61. Uh, but in those days. Um, we really wrote a ton. And uh, my kids went to really good high schools in Jerusalem and they were fairly good students. Um, they didn't write. I mean, they really just didn't learn how to write. My kids, two of my three kids learned how to write in law school, um, which is in Israel, of course, is a first degree. I mean, it's what you do as your BA. Uh, but they both went to Hebrew University Law School and they had a great education there and they really learned how to write. And my other one learned when he studied philosophy at Tel Aviv University, but they didn't, they didn't write a thing in high school. And so there, I think America is still I don't know what it's kind like of, now. But it's kind of ironic. Like like that. It's ironic. We're like the, the people of the book. 
Okay, we're, yeah. writing is, is such a a, a fundamental no, concept it, of it, it is who a we skill. are. It's a skill, and I agree with no, you. No, I know it's a skill, but it's my point: yeah. is that you would, one would think that in such a a a complex and storied people with a history of 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 literacy, books, yeah, and books, yeah, that that would be a skill that the system would value in such a way that they would want to teach. It's true. And, and it's true. And I've yeah. noticed that I've noticed that uh, as even the smartest, uh, the, the version of AP, you know, students here in Israel, they do not know how to write. They, they don't learn how to write. Uh, and I was in a part of the army where people had to write at a very high level. And, and uh, it is not something they come out of high school knowing where, whereas I did come out of high school, you know, uh, being a decently good writer. And that's something we worked on. That's interesting. Um, what, what you said, you had some interesting thoughts about your vaccination process. I'm just curious what that was. Oh, I was like, it's a very Israeli experience. I'll just tell you two stories, one that happened to me and one that happened to somebody else that I was talking to today. Um, so we go there and I was, of course, expecting the classic Israeli mob scene, you know, sort of a <laughs> soccer game, uh, you know, in, in halftime or something. And I was just dreading it. I hate those kinds of things. Like I hate boarding an LL plane. And I always say, <laughs> why can't this be like United or Delta where people just actually line up? Um, I just hate that kind of stuff. So I was really kind of dreading it. Um, and then we get there, of course, on time because we're Americans and we park and we walk in and the guy says, you have an appointment. And we said, yes. And he says, OK, you can go in. But I just want you to know they're not going according to your appointment time. You take a number inside and they're going according to that number. And I was like, sure. oh, God, here we go. Yep. Anyway, but sure enough, I mean, we were literally, you know, you have to sign in with the ner- uh, uh, the front desk and then you fill out a form and, you know, blah, blah. We were vaccinated within seven minutes of putting our foot in that building. It was unbelievably, it was unbelievably efficient. Everybody was super nice. Everybody was very calm. Of course, you know, we're all old. So none of us had any energy for doing anything out of sort. But it was really amazing. But then here was the Israeli part of it. We're all sitting. They tell you you have to wait 15 minutes after the vaccine to just sit around and make sure you feel well. And then you can leave. Um, Because if you're going to drop dead, they don't want you to do it while you're driving home. They want you to do it right there. So uh, nobody did that while I was there, but we all, you know, we're sitting there for 15 minutes and then we just brought our books and they're walking around and they're handing out these, these like booklets and they keep saying, like children's games. (laughs) And I'm like, did you look and see who's here? (laughs) Everybody here is old. And this is now like eight o'clock at night. There's no children here. What are you doing? And then people kept saying, oh, I want one. I want one. I was like, Seriously, but then I understood. And it was an amazing thing. They were giving out those booklets so that grandparents who hadn't been able to play with their grandchildren for months could play these games with them. Oh, wow. In other words, they understood that everybody who was there was really there so they could see their grandchildren. And it was, I was very moved by it. It was a very Jewish thing. It's like, we're not going so we can go to the Bahamas and be safe. We're not going because I want to get back on the plane to Kiev and start doing business. I haven't seen my grand, and I actually haven't seen my grandchildren because they're in the states. But all those people, all they really wanted out of this vaccine was to hug their grandchildren. And I thought that was amazing that the Kupat Cholim, the the health provider, had actually figured that out and had prepared these booklets in advance for all these grandparents. I thought that was really cool. That's beautiful. You know, it's it's one of those only in Israel moments. And and you, hundred percent. You know, as much as this place is chaotic, and, and like you said, people don't know how to stand in a line, and everyone you know thinks they're more important because their time is more precious. And then you have one of these kind of moments. You know, you have one. Yes, yeah, so somebody people. else told me a great story today. Also, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. 
he told me he told me this this amazing story. He is a guy that you know I, I could, he, he helps us out with something. So we were talking on the phone today, and he's probably younger than me. He must be in I guess his early fifties. So he's not eligible yet. And um, apparently, he and his wife take care of a woman who lives not too far from them. Like she's not their family or anything, but they kind of look out for her and whatever. And her her turn to get vaccinated was yesterday, yesterday evening someplace. And she had a real live appointment and the whole shebang, but they didn't want to let her take a taxi and they didn't want her certainly to take a bus or anything. So they said, we'll drive you. It's kind of what they do for her. So apparently it was downtown in Jerusalem. So parking is very hard. So both people went with her. So he went and drove the car so they wouldn't have to park. He could stay in the car. And she went to take the woman into the thing. She goes in and like 10 minutes later, his wife calls him on the cell phone. And she says, park the car and come in quickly. They're going to vaccinate us. And he's like, okay. So he parks the car, he runs in and the nurse explains, if you were nice enough to take care of this woman and bring her in, the least we can do is vaccinate you. And it was all above board. You know, they did it on the computer (laughs) and the whole shebang. But again, like, you know, if you're taking care of an older person that you don't really have to, well, the country should actually honor that and, and give you a vaccine. I just thought it was, those are like two minute, very kind of Israeli, yeah. Israeli moments. I think those of us who live here, those are the moments that make it worth it. I, I agree. It, 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 is, it is one of those things. And, the, and, there, and there is like a dichotomy that exists between, you know, we poke fun about at the very sometimes real dysfunction of our leadership and of our government. And then you have these moments where it's like, okay, the, the same country that has now gone into the third quasi, not really kind of sort of lockdown is also the same country who is leading, you know, this tiny little country in the Middle East that's leading the world in vaccinations at this pl- at this state. And and you just told the story about how somebody that didn't even have an appointment and isn't even in the, in the, the particular group that they're vaccinating is like, yeah, come in here and get a vaccination and it's completely above the board. And people in the states that are in that group, I mean, it's like my, my family lives in Minnesota. In, in the states and and i think that they have for the and, entire month and your of, mom's listening by the way i'm Hi, sure she's listening for the, for the entire month of uh of uh december the whole state had something like uh, two hundred thousand vaccines to, to disperse uh and, and their yeah. population is roughly you know five million people so do the math right. and, and here we are nine million and a half in the total in the, in the whole country we're not even at the end of the month and we we've done already twice that so for a person that's let's say uh you know 10 years your senior in America, they might be looking at getting the vaccine at the end of January, February, right. maybe. Right. What, what do you make right. of that? Of, of, I mean, you, you, you study these sorts of things. Like, what do you make of that sort of a uh, disparity? Well, look, I think there's going to be a fascinating story to be told one day how it is that Israel got all these vaccines. You know, I mean, people aren't really talking about that very much. But uh, first of all, Bibi's clearly going to use it as his springboard for re-election. I and mean, he's going he's to run on that. Basically, he's going to say whatever else you want to say about this government got you vaccinated before anybody else in the world. Um, so I'm competent. And that may actually do the job, by the way. Um, but I think in addition to that, there's going to be a really interesting story to be told. I mean, how is it that we have all these millions of vaccines that are made in America when there's not enough for America yet? Like, there is something a little interesting about that. I have no idea how it worked. Uh, I heard a conspiracy. Yeah, well, no, I don't know if it was purchased above board. Some people are saying that Israel actually invested in the Pfizer and Moderna processes on the condition that they would get it, um, maybe. But here's where somebody in Israel was really very competent. Uh, It's also the advantage, obviously, of being somewhat smaller, uh, but it's also the advantage of being a centralized healthcare system. In other words, my brother lives on the Upper West Side of New York. 
he doesn't believe he's going to get vaccinated till June, July. He doesn't really see he's younger than me. He's in his late fifties. He doesn't see how he's going to get vaccinated before July. But then I said to him, well, who actually vaccinates you? Like who calls you and says it's your turn? And he said, I have actually no idea. Like, as you know, I have a general practitioner and I have a doctor for this and a doctor for that, but there's nothing centralized about it. Um, some people have insurance. Some people don't have insurance. Like every citizen of Israel, you know, older or younger, healthy or not healthy, Jew or Arab, it doesn't make any difference. Every citizen of Israel is a member, as you guys know, of one of those three Kupot Cholim. So it's very simple. How do you reach everybody? You've got everybody's cell phone number. You just start pinging them. Right. So I think it's a, you know, centralized medicine has a lot of advantages. Um, we're seeing one of them now. I, I heard a, a conspiracy that doesn't sound completely crazy that uh, we we actually are all secretly being volunteered to be um, uh, kind of in a, like a late stage testing type thing. You know, let's <laughs> let's do it on Israel first and see how it goes on them. Um, but I, I we, really we just by the way, we just got shadow banned on Facebook and Twitter because you said that. I want you to know that. What did we just get? You got shadow banned. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I'll explain to you afterwards. Is that good or bad? <laughs> it's bad. It's 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 essentially when social media algorithms will hear certain content about, uh, in this case, uh, dis- misinformation or disinformation about the vaccine, and they will not necessarily cancel you, but they will, dis- you know, uh, you will you will drop in the priority rankings of where they're going to push your your story. Well, let not- the record show I'm not the one that said that. Yes, I don't really think that we will. I, I don't, but. Um, no, I'm, I'm joking, but it has happened before that people have been uh, interesting shadow banned. Um, it, it is strange, though. I mean, it's it's we live in a place where there is such simultaneous, you know, uh, a dysfunction and, and high functionality at the same time. And it's, um, it's, it's the story of the two Israels. Yeah. We, yeah. we talk about it in so many aspects. Uh, we talk about it in the economy. You know, we have the tech economy which is by far the, the most productive, innovative tech economy in the world, right? More, uh, more patents, more startups per capita than anywhere in the world, um, second only to Silicon Valley. And at the same time, we have, you know, the most, you know, I don't want to say backwards, but pretty backwards, um, um, you know, industry. If you look at traditional industry, for example, um, you know, if we go back to my army experience, we have, Literally the most elite units in the world, but also some pretty some well, dude, look units, at, look units at, that barely look at, function. You know, look at and, look at uh, you don't have to look much further than you know. On the one hand, the <laughs> vaccines, and on the the other hand, the Corona hotels and the whole saga right. of people coming back from overseas and and where, where we had you know it's the two Israels. There's yeah. two Israels that exist right. simultaneously, and I think when people come here and, and see them, they, they're often um, they're often shocked. But um, what what so. We, we kind of cut you off at the beginning to, to take this uh, detour, but what have you been uh, working on lately? What, where have your thoughts been? Where's your research and writing been lately? So I've actually been working on a, a project about um, how Judaism might need to respond to this new era in which we're in. So I won't go into detail because it's not out there yet, but what I'll say is I actually think that Israel and America are about to face very different challenges in terms of Jewish substance, but in a kind of a similar way. Here's what I mean. I think Jewish life in America is about to get harder. Um, it just, you know, we don't have to go into all the details, but everybody knows I mean, the, the whole anti-Semitic thing in America is clearly growing. It's been out of the news lately because there's been so much else that's in the news. Um, but the most recent FBI report, for example, just shows that Americans are, well, they're 2% of the American population and they are the objects of 62 point, yeah. 62% 
of um, religiously motivated hate crime in America. We had and a, we've seen we had an FBI agent on our show a few weeks back, and we actually talked about this um, with him. Is this, is this the impetus for this uh, mosaic article that you published? So the mosaic article, yeah. So um, oh, you guys are great for PR. I should have used you a few books ago, <laughs> but um, and it saved all that money that well, I wasted on people me. that I did pay for PR. But <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, the Mosaic article is actually one small piece of a much larger project that I'm thinking about doing, which is to say, I'll leave the Mosaic piece aside. I think that the interesting question is this, if it's going to get harder to be Jewish in America because of a whole array of reasons, right? The left thinks that you're part of the establishment and the right thinks you're not white enough and, and so on and so forth. Um, why do it? And the question really is, can, can Jews make a contribution to the goodness of America, the culture of America, and all of that. And I think Israel may have a very different problem, which is that it may actually get easier to be Israeli. And I'll tell you, the, in the following sense, I think there's a good chance, I mean, good chance, who the hell knows, but <laughs> I think there's a decent chance that we're going to look back in 2020, and it's going to be a horrible year in a lot of ways, right? And you're going to look back at American politics and find it very hard to believe that that actually ever happened. But um, we're going to also, I think, possibly 20, 30 years from now, look back on 2020 and say, that was the year that the Israeli-Arab conflict began to stop. It began to end, including the Palestinians. Everybody's, you know, shrine Gavalt now, but all these deals don't include the Palestinians. That's all well and true, but it may convince them that it's time to start thinking about this in a different kind of a way. So there's some possibility that we're going to look back in 2040 and say, you know, 2020 was the beginning of the end. And now, like, let's assume that Iran is, is dealt with in one way, shape, manner, or form. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all cool. You know, the Palestinian situation has been resolved, however it's been resolved. And all these other countries around the world have basically made their peace with us. Um, and then, so what are we doing here? Like, what are we here for? I think a large part of our sense of tenacity here comes from the fact that they're trying to kick us out, right? So simply staying put is a matter of principle. But what if staying put, like, what if it's like South Dakota? Right, what you know, it's easy. Right, and so there, I think Americans and Israelis are actually have the same question, which is, so what's the substance of this thing called being a Jew? What's the substance of this thing called being an Israeli? So I obviously people have written about this for hundreds of years, and certainly the last decades in America have produced, you know, more than a share of the YB Jewish books. Um, but I'm looking at it from a specific angle, which is to say, are there things that are wrong with the world now that Jews might have a unique thing to say? about those things. Um, and we would make a contribution by actually reclaiming the voice that was ours. So that's the that's what, what I'm thinking about playing with and so forth. What do you think it does to the state, the current state of tense relations between, uh, let's say, uh, normative Israel and normative uh, liberal American Jewry if it all becomes cool here in Israel. So that's a really interesting question. You could argue it in two different directions, right? I mean, you could say, oh my God, you know, because what upsets them now is mostly the conflict and to a lesser extent, but still a significant extent, the treatment of non-Orthodox streams of Judaism. Let's assume we could address that somehow. I don't even know how, but let's just put that aside for a second, not to minimize its importance, just to put it aside for a sec. Um, Yes, you could say, wow, they're no longer, you know, empty occupationing. And so therefore, um, you could imagine a whole much warmer set of relationships. Come back to why I think that's unlikely in a minute. Um, the other thing that you can imagine, though, is that the absence of the conflict will suck the energy out of the American Jewish-Israel relationship in the following way. 
Think about all the organizations in America that you know that deal with Israel. And think about what percentage of their work and rhetoric and airs time, et cetera, is, is about the conflict, right? I mean, we don't have to go into enlisting all those. Or, it's, it's huge. It's, major, it's major, what it is. Portion of their right, so if you suck the conflict air out of that bottle, you leave, I think, a huge vacuum. And I think people won't really know what to talk about. Um, but that's where I think, actually, we have a huge opportunity here, right, to meet each other when it comes to matters of content. Like, what are, how are Israelis dealing with issues of immigration? And how are American Jews dealing with issues of immigration in America? And what does the Jewish tradition have to say about immigration, right, or economics? Is, you know, there's a whole big battle now, right, between the Bernies and the uh, AOCs and the Elizabeth Warrens on the one hand, um, and the responsible Republican Party on the other side. And there's Jews in both of those camps. There's lots of Jews in both of those camps. Um, is there a Jewish economic perspective? And, is, and how does that, how should that play out in America? If I'm an American Jew and I want to leave my thumbprint on American politics, whether I'm a registered Democrat or Republican or independent, what does my tradition say about economics? Is it a free market tradition? Is it a socialist tradition? Is it something else? And the same thing is true in Israel. Like if we want to build a Jewish democratic state, what does the Jewishness of that state have to do with the economics? So there's an economic issue, there's, there's immigration, there's thousands or at least dozens of issues where I think that's where really thoughtful American Jews and Israelis could actually meet and have a really profound conversation in which the third partner is actually the Jewish tradition. And I, I don't mean wanna... keeping kosher and Shabbat, just the, the right. 2000 years of ideas. I want to, I, I don't even want to say, it, you know, call it pushing back because I'm not pushing back. I just want to challenge it for a second. Do you think that there's enough American Jews that would care to know what the Jewish uh, perspective is on economics that would even have that thought? I, I, I let me jump in here. I mean, before you do, I absolutely at the risk really? of alienating a lot of people. But no, listening, I, I, I think, look, I, something, you know, that I've been researching and writing on lately is, is kind of this renaissance that's happening in the in the non-Orthodox American Jewish community. And you see a huge, um, I don't even say a return, because traditionally American Jews outside of Orthodoxy didn't study Jewish text. And now you have a booming, a booming. Of, of non-Orthodox American Jewry engaging with Jewish text in a serious way um, that you've never really had before in such a, a broad manner through all sorts of organizations on the local level and the national level. And digitally now, what, what um, COVID has done, you've had this huge booming of frameworks. Uh, if we're talking about Hadar, if we're talking about 929, if we're talking about all of these amazing initiatives that are non-denominational. Um, and, and also not to mention what's happening within reform conservative and other non-denominational non-orthodox synagogues where people are studying Jewish text for the first time in serious ways. You've never had this before. I think people are looking for to, to see what Judaism at least has to say. And the difference between non-orthodox and orthodox is the orthodox will sit down and see what it has to say and be like, okay, this is what guides us. Non-orthodox will look down and, and, and read the text and see, okay, how can this help shape where we're going, and this isn't something we've really seen before. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, from from uh, or, or how you view it from kind of your perch or, or from your research. So I actually I don't I do agree. Uh, I agree completely. I want to come back to the part where I agree, and I'll just push back on one thing here, and I'll edgify the conversation uh, for a second. I think 
that I wish it were the case that the Orthodox community would look and say, okay, these are the guidelines of Judaism. That's what guides us. That, that does happen on Shabbat and that happens on Kashrut and that happens on davening and whatever. It does not happen with all that the Jewish tradition has to say about the importance of character in leaders. In other words, for example, this was an instance in which I think the Orthodox community, not all, to be sure, not all, but especially the rabbinate, uh, because they appreciated his stuff on Israel or they agreed with him on economics or even immigration or whatever the case may be. They said, OK, but all that other stuff that makes him fundamentally, you know, an odious human being in every possible way, we're going to ignore that. And I think we kind of look askance that when ev evangelicals endorse Roy Moore because of his stance on abortion, even though there are some fairly plausible accusations that he was involved with 14-year-old girls mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And we say, what kind of a religious community like endorses a guy like that just because he's got a political position on that? We have to be very careful we don't fall into that trap. So I wish it were the case that in the Orthodox community, they would say, oh, these are the guidelines. That's what's going to guide us. I actually think that that's, it should be more true than it is. It's true on ritual issues, to be sure. I think it's less true in other areas. But what you're saying, Dan, about, about these new frameworks is a thousand percent true. And I think, you know, you mentioned a lot of really good ones. And there's another one, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, which is Safaria. Yeah. Right now, Safaria is this uh, website that's got all these Jewish texts, many of them translated, but all of them searchable. And Safaria just came out with something unbelievable just yesterday. It's not even up and running yet. I think it's going to start January 5th. But it's basically go to the website. If you want to do Dafyomi, the daily study of the page of Talmud, click here and we'll assign you a random study partner. I love it. That's great. Now, that's totally awesome because you don't even know what denomination you're going to get, right? You could be a modern Orthodox kid at the University of Pennsylvania who's going to get, you know, a left-wing lesbian from California. And you're going to have to meet over that text and have a serious conversation and see how each of you views the world. You could get a left-wing person and a right-wing person, a religious person and a secular person. You could get an American and a French Jew. You could get a French Jew and an Israeli Jew. And you could begin to build, I mean, you know, when you think about how it was, you know, an, an Eastern European rabbi, just about well, 97 years ago, who came up with this Dafyomi idea, but it was, you know, one of those old guys with the beard and the whole, you know, it's Eastern Europe par excellence. The idea that Jews, as you were saying, Dan, of all different walks of life, and, and including, you know, non-observant non people and people who don't have a lot of background would actually be meeting this way over Jewish text. I think it's unbelievably exciting. It is. Now, to go back to, you know, to go back to the first question is, you know, how many people want to do this? Probably not as many as I wish, and probably more than we think. Right. Words, I think there's a lot of people out there who are interested in meaningful lives. And if they find that Judaism could provide that, they would grab it. They just think that Judaism is kind of dumb. Like, you know, you light candles and you dress up on Purim until your kids move out of the house. And you go to high holiday services that bore you out of your skin. Well, yeah. So, so that I mean, that's why I was fascinated by, by these things that I saw on, on my last visit to the U.S., uh, and that's why I chose to write about it. Um, and, 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 you know, some of, some of the rabbis that I interviewed um, who were doing some amazing things said, you know, uh, like you said, until the kids grow up, they said American Judaism, a lot of the frameworks, a lot of the institutions are stuck in pediatric Judaism. You know, Judaism for, sure. for the kids and then your kids move out and, and you're done and you have to look for ways to, to connect it to you. By the way, I, we, we didn't mention this, um, but you, you're also an ordained uh, conservative rabbi uh, at yeah. least in, in your training, in your education. Um, so yep. I'm, I'm sure that that has informs a, a lot of your worldview. Um, Safari, but it's it's incredible, and and I, 
I use it um, when I want to delve into Jewish texts or, you know, my kids go to um, an Orthodox school here, um, a, a public Orthodox school here in Israel. And I didn't, I didn't grow up, uh, I grew up reform. So I don't have the training um, to sit down with uh, a Gemara. I don't, I don't know how to open the Talmud and, and research something. I can't read Aramaic. So for me, um, to be able to to just go to Safari on my phone, you can't read Aramaic. I can read Aramaic, Dude. and actually, I understand more than I realize. By the way, any anyone who who grasps Hebrew and and some of my Arabic also, then you can you can actually. It's understand. important to learn because if you want to go to northern Syria and you know go to a restaurant and order dinner, you really kind of got to get that Aramaic yeah. under your belt. Super useful. If you ever want to go to Kurdistan, you need to know. Uh, right, you, exactly. Kurds, by the way, speak modern Aramaic. I think it would be super fascinating to do a trip where you take a bunch of like yeshivish people from Nebrak <laughs> and and do some sort of a pilgrimage to, to, to Kurdistan. Like, to Kurdistan. It would be, and it would they be find awesome. It, they're like, wait, you speak, you speak. And then like the accent would be very different. But yeah. but anyway, um, it's, it's an incredible thing, Safaria. I use it myself because then you can you can keyword search. You get the English, you get the Hebrew, you get the commentators in English or Hebrew or whatever other languages they might offer. Um, and, and, uh, it's great. The guy who started it is the brother. And I, I can't remember his name, but he's the brother of Jonathan Safran Foyer, who's a, a right. fairly well-known uh, Jewish author. Right. All three brothers are ridiculously yeah. accomplished. You sort of have to wonder what their mom put in the yeah. dinner there, but uh, I mean, one after the other, they are extraordinarily successful, brilliant people. Exactly. Um, I want to go back to something you said, you know, that 2020 might be seen as the year that we started solving or figuring out or made the Israeli-Palestinian or the Israeli-Arab conflict less relevant. It's something the, begin, I, the beginning of the end. Of the the beginning of the end. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And uh, I've been involved in a lot of Israel-UAE stuff, so I'm having a lot of these discussions. I'm, I'm a Middle East guy by training, a Middle East uh, analyst by training. And um, there there's really is something there because you have, I think the, the UAE move tripped off you know, a series of dominoes that, you know, until now, you know, we had quiet relations with a bunch of countries. We had um, official but very cold relations with Egypt and Jordan. And all of a sudden, it's becoming normal. It's going to take time. It's going to take time. I'm, I'm reading and having conversations with Arabs on Arabs from across the region uh, and Muslims from beyond the Arab world um, on Twitter. And you're seeing that normalization starting to happen, the, the idea that Israel's a part of the region um, and that, yeah, we can talk to them. And that I think, you know, something that maybe a lot of the right wing supporters of the agreement here in Israel aren't thinking of, but it's going to then bring us to a place as a society where we are far less defensive about the Palestinians. And if they can open up in turn, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm articulating this as, as much as I've actually thought about it, but it, I think it could it could help bring down some defensive walls, um, proverbial ones, of course, um, in Israel, and then eventually, hopefully, on the Palestinian side as well, um, which is what the UAE's move kind of was to begin with. And then you, what happens then? Um, let's take this back to to what's the point of Judaism? What's the point of Israel? What happens to us? when we're not defending ourselves, um, when we're not defending ourselves physically as much, when we're not constantly having to do Hasbara. I've said in, in you know, um, my day job at the JPPI, I always talk about, can we think about the next stage when we don't have to do Hasbara anymore? What does it look like? Where are we? You know, 
I, I'd be, you know, I don't know. I'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts on, on what happens to Israel and what happens to our concept of Zionism then. It kind of depends on who runs this place, which takes us back to Shalem College, why we do what we do. But assuming that we have the people at the helm who are the right kinds of people, then I think what we do is we kind of reinvigorate that, that conversation that many of us read about in Arthur Hertzberg's book, The Zionist Idea, or Giltroy's revitalization of the book called The Zionist Ideas, right? Zionism in the turn of the 20th century, as you guys know better than I do, was an unbelievably rich, vital argument, conversation, discussion yeah. about what is this place going to look like? What is our attitude to Arabs going to be? What is our attitude to money going to be? What is our attitude to Jews in the diaspora going to be? Um, it was a really exciting intellectual period, which, you know, that it's not accidental that Arthur Hertzberg ended his book more or less, you know, in the middle part of the 20th century. Um, Giltroy tried to, you know, squeeze it out and, you know, bring some more, you know, some more modern thinkers in. But there's no Achad Ha'ams out there anymore. And there's no Jabotinsky's anymore. Now, partly you don't need them because you have the country, but it's still... I think that's the fascinating conversation that we could then have if we had the right kind of education, if we had the right kind of leaders to say, we're, we have a Jewish state for the first time in 2000 years. And now for the first time in an X number of years, we're not actually worried about if we're gonna wake up here 10 years from now. What do we wanna build? What we have a 20% Arab minority. Um, what's the Jewish attitude to that minority? What, what should it be? And now no, they're no longer the cousins of the enemy because there's no, there's no enemy, right? Um, and again, we're, 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 we're oversimplifying, but you know, what would that mean? Or you have, let's say the Haredi situation hasn't changed that much and it looks a lot like it looks now. Um, how do you engage people like that in a society, right? You don't need them to go to the army. Drafting them is no longer necessary because it's all being done by drones and robots anyway. And we don't need a huge army because we're more or less at peace. What do they have to do to be part of the, what do they have to do to be part, come part of the social contract? I think there's a thousand no, 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 questions here. Because demographically, aren't they going to be much, much, much larger 20, 30 years from now than they are now? And maybe half, they'll be deciding these issues for us. Let me throw a statistic. Well, let me throw a statistic. Yeah, at you. Half today, half of first graders in this country are, if Haredi. I'm not mistaken, are Haredi or Arab. I think half the first graders in Jerusalem, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. Half the first graders we're, in the country. In I don't know. You might be right. You might be right. We could probably check it out. Sure. You could check it out online while we're talking. But um yeah, I look, there's, there, is, there is obviously the demographic ticking time bound. We also know this, though. We know that the more women's education levels go up, the more birth rates go down. Absolutely. Um, so we all have a vested interest, actually, even if we don't love the idea of gender-separated campuses at Hebrew University, because we think there's something just fundamentally uh, about that. Uh, we actually all have, I think, and I don't love the idea either, I have to tell you, but I think we have actually a vested interest in seeing more and more Haredi women going to college and going to university because uh, it will bring down the birth rate. The birth rate, by the way, is already declining. It's mm. going to be super interesting to see what the impact of COVID is on this mm. because the, after the fallout, right, they're going to have to wake up and recognize that they were complicit in violating a social contract that was really important and their rabbis were complicit in being on the wrong side of certain kinds of issues. Um, it's gonna be very interesting to see like five years from now, how has the image of the rabbi, of the, 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 you know, the gadol in, in those communities 
How has it been changed? I was reading uh, Makor Rishon, which is a kind of a right of center newspaper for our listeners, watchers, readers, whatever. Yeah, sorry, it's um, only in Hebrew. It's an excellent newspaper, but it's only in Hebrew for English. It's only in Hebrew. That's correct. But there was actually a lot of stuff written last week about how people inside the, in the Haredi community think this was the beginning of a big change because people feel left out. Rabbi Kanievsky, who you know doesn't actually know what the internet really is, has never been on it. Um, really had no business there saying, telling us that we should keep schools open when the infections were were flaring all around and so on and so forth. I think a lot of them are going to ask themselves, you know what, you can't really socially isolate with 15 people living in a three-bedroom apartment or five-bedroom apartment, whatever it is. Yeah. Do we really want to, do we really want to choose, do we want to choose poverty? Do we want to choose that kind of a birth rate? Uh, well, I attended a you, lecture you at Shalem College. Go ahead. Sorry, you've had that discussion bubbling up within the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community for some time now. Um, for sure. And, and I've heard people refer to the those who are then asking those questions, do we want to continue to be poor? Can we enjoy a middle-class lifestyle? Um, the split calling them modern Haredi. Um, right. Yeah. That's so, so uh, you know, it, it's interesting what you say, because something happened in the in the... Zionist Orthodox, which people often conflate with modern Orthodoxy, but it's not. But the uh, Dati Leumi, the Zionist Orthodox camp in Israel, in that we, it is no longer beholden to its rabbis. The the um, the average Zionist Orthodox Jew in Israel, the Kippah Suga, the knitted Kippah Jew in Israel, is no longer beholden to rabbinical authority. And that's kind of a, maybe we can call it a post-rabbinic shift um, in the thinking of of the the average Dati uh, Lomi here in Israel. And it's really curious that you're bringing that we might see that because of COVID in five or 10 years in the ultra-Orthodox community. Because right now, I mean, I don't know how much you're familiar with this, Benny, because you're, I'm, I'm like on the outskirts of the religious world. You're totally out of it. But it's, it's kind of the big divide between the Dati Lomi and the Haredi worlds here in Israel is how much do you listen to a central authority or a central rabbi? And if we see that split, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, what does that mean for the Haredi world? Does that mean no more Haredi world? Does that mean? No, that, I don't think it means that. that. And I don't think they're going to move post-Rabbinic authority so quickly either. But they might assume, for example, in matters of religious issues, hmm. the rabbis, right now the rabbis determine everything. everything. They might just decide there's public health issues, there's economic issues, whatever, uh, that we're going to be, you know, we're going to think about differently. We'll see. By the way, some of this, Dan, is actually, interestingly, a uh, an influence of the Mizrahi world, which is really kind of interesting, because a lot of people have pointed out, Mayor Buzaglo and others have pointed out that what really animates the call it the modern Orthodox world and the Ashkenazi world um, is obedience. I, you're right about the rabbinic thing. We'll come back to that in a second. But typically, you know, right? You grew up in a certain community. The rabbi said, "This is what we do. That's what you do." The rabbi said, "Women wear sleeves to here. The women wear sleeves to here." The rabbi said, "Bnei Akiva has to be separated, boys and girls." Separated boys and girls. We don't eat this on Pesach. We don't eat this on Pesach. We certainly don't drive on Shabbat, right? And I'm coming back to that example for a reason. In the in the Mizrahi community, which is mostly Jews from the Levant, right, North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, and so forth, Buzaglo argues that the main determining adjective about their relationship was not obedient but um, observe, uh, uh, respectful, mm. venerating. In other words, so think about all these Mizrahi guys who would never miss going to shul on a Friday night, but also go to the beach on Shabbat morning without any sense of, you know, non, you know, there's no, 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 no dissonance there. 
Now, if you ask a, a Bnei Akiva person from the Ashkenazi world, they would say, to, do you believe that the Torah is given by God? And they say, of course. And does therefore Shabbat obligate you? Of course. So do you go to Shul Friday night? Of course. Would you go to the beach Shabbos morning? What are you talking about? Of course not. Now you ask those same questions to a Mizrahi person. Do you believe God gave the Torah? Of course. Do you believe that the Jewish Jewish law comes from God? Of course. Do you go to Shul every Friday night? Of course. Do you go to the beach? Yeah. Well, how do you justify that? That would be the answer. Yeah. yeah. But the rabbi, the rabbi knows it. And in most communities, nobody has to hide it. And I think right. ironically, that sense of veneration without absolute obedience is actually making its way into the Ashkenazi modern Orthodox community. But, I'll tell you where you see it. Go ahead. I was going to say it also, it also has the effect of making people in that community less judgmental one of the other of yeah. what their behaviors are because there's less. For sure. Right? So For sure. For example, By the way, we've been davening outside during COVID. This is fascinating. We've been davening outside and I go to a, what you'd call, I guess, an Orthodox egalitarian minion, right? I know that sounds like a, you know, a contradiction in terms, but it's got a separate men and women. Uh, it's very traditional. They don't skip anything, blah, 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 blah. But women and men can each do everything, basically. Now, because we're davening outside, because we can't be inside because of the pandemic, people who are walking to other shuls, all, we're outside like in a, in a matnas, a community center. So people are, you know, see, it's a very public space. It's not this a little garden off to the side. Is this why Jerusalem but, is, is, is red in certain neighborhoods and green in other, in other neighborhoods because everyone's <laughs> pool hopping from one to the other? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, but we see these people like Haredi people and people who are close to Haredi and hardcore modern Orthodox walking by and they see a woman leading services or they hear a woman leading services and then they, they turn to look a little bit more and their look is kind of like, hmm. And none of this like her kind of stuff. And it's just, I think it's also, by the way, I say, you know, a modern Orthodox egalitarian shul. So you'd say, well, oh my God, who's the rabbi that, said that was okay and that goes right to dan's point no rabbi said that no was rabbi. okay yeah, yeah. so yeah. why do these modern orthodox people think it's okay to do because they're all the products of yeshivot they can read those texts they can study those texts they can do the halakhic research and they can come up with a viewpoint that's deeply grounded in text i mean their education has actually given them a certain amount of autonomy and freedom there's a lot of shifting sands here which is Absolutely. why by the way american jews need to understand that those terms like orthodox conservative and reform are just completely literally meaningless in this yeah. country. They, they just, they, they want to know, for example, why, why is reform not stronger in Israel? Why is conservative not stronger in Israel? The question itself is, out of the best of intentions, utterly nonsensical, because people in Israel who are not observant may know a tremendous amount, may actually do certain things very rigorously and very, you know, be very involved in all kinds of ritual. They don't need um, a full affiliation for it. They don't exactly, and well, they may be having opposed to certain elements of those of those you know movement affiliations. They whatever they're very American creations. It's an interesting. It's an interesting question in terms of how much do you feel? I, I'm not developing this thought very well, but in America, Jewish is considered a religious identity first and foremost by most Jews. In Israel, it's it's your ethnic identity, your nationality. You know, we are, and and if you're studying it from an anthropological viewpoint. Being a Jew is your is your people. Judaism is the set of beliefs that your people subscribes to, and it's a tribal it's a tribal people with an ancient history and so on and so forth. In America, it's detached from that because of the history of America. How much do you think that that figures into you know that that type of understanding of what is a Jew figures into what you were just mentioning? I think a lot. 
Um, I think I pointed out in the book that you were so kind to not hold up for 45 minutes in front of the camera. Um, you have to do it again. <laughs> here he goes again. <laughs> if you joined late, that's the book you definitely want to buy before <laughs> this is over. Um, I'm actually going to go on later and just check the Amazon rankings. And if it hasn't gone up, I'm going to, you know, be very upset. But um, no, but in all seriousness, I think I point out in that book, like if you go to America and you say, okay, fill out, fill the following phrase, Jews and. They'll say Christians are Gentiles. Right. Right. And you say that to an Israeli Jews and Arabs. Arabs. You say Arabs. Right. But Arab isn't a religion. Exactly. There's Christian Arabs, there's Muslim Arabs, there's all kinds of Arabs. Um, because we think of ourselves here fundamentally as a nationality, and they think of themselves fundamentally as a religion. It's part of the reason we don't understand each other. I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, but part of it is we have a completely different sense of what this Jewish thing is. Like here, right, which one of you is more religious, one of you is less religious, which one of you is more Jewish? That's a ridiculous question. Sure. Right. And which one of you has a life more infused with Jewish content and Jewish substance? in the air. Also a ridiculous question, because Absolutely. by virtue of the fact that you both live in Israel, it's everywhere all the time. It's just a question of how you actually choose to act on it. Whereas in America, typically, if you're not more observant, you could go days on end without much Jewish stuff bombarding your screen or your brain or whatever it is. We're just talking about radically different realities here, which is why I was saying before, you know, I think that there's some possibility, uh, which we have to hope doesn't happen, but there's some possibility that if you get you know, peace here, which we have to hope does happen, um, you kind of suck the energy that the conflict provides out of the equation in this conversation between us. And you sort of have to wonder what's going to be the trigger thing that's going to set America just get them all excited and passionate. Right now, nobody's going to argue anymore about whether triangle K is kosher. And nobody's going to argue anymore about whether you can ordain women because the reform and conservative movements do. And the Orthodox movement does in very small places and the most Orthodox movement doesn't. But nobody cares anymore what anybody else does. Right. When I was in rabbinical school, it was a huge thing. Will this rabbi sit with that rabbi? Will they call us this? Will they We're way beyond that. Yeah, nobody gives a hoot. Nobody cares. So what's the one issue that gets American Jews of all stripes? really worked up israel the occupation you know what i'll, I'll push back uh, or war there's a, there's or a lot whatever, of truth but you to suck it. that out what's left yeah there's a lot of truth to it and a lot of a lot of jews in america um their connection to israel is defending israel because it's constantly being attacked and then there's a minority growing minority of american jews whose point is to criticize israel um and, and have made a have made a point and, and, of, I, and of I would disconnecting add from Zionism and being post-Zionist or critical of Zionism or anti-Zionism. And I would add to that, and I'm sure that you're including the, these people in, in the category that you just described, but there's also a very vocal minority of Jews in America who believe that they know best for Israel and that they're going to tell us sure, but, but there's how a, we can solve our conflicts and if yeah, we don't and listen On to the them. left and the right, by the way. On the Correct. left and the right. But I was coming to a different point uh, in that I think the biggest group of American Jews are the ones who are eh, on Israel. Just, it's, it's not a part of my life. And I've met, I've met more of these. I'm not going to name any names and shame people on the show, but Stu Bernstein, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've met and been shocked by it because I've met American Jews who have been here. Forget the ones who haven't been here. I've met American Jews who have been here, who have spent time here who have family here who, who have told me, you know what? I, I care about you because you live there. Uh, but if Israel disappeared tomorrow, meh, I, I wouldn't care. Um, and, and I think, you know, do, do you think there's, this is something I've been wrestling with a lot lately, and maybe, you know, I'm, I might try to to turn this into my next project, is um, 
do you see any kind of arc, any kind of trend in American Judaism that is trying to think about itself unrelated to Israel? That, you know, why do we need to be, we're American Jews, why do we need to be focused so much on Israel for good or bad? Why can't Israel, Israel is a thing, we're American Jews, Judaism is this this religion, this thought, this cultural treasure chest, whatever, you know, different words that people explain to me. Um, it doesn't need to be relevant to my Judaism, to my path, to my spirituality. Have you seen this? Have you thought about this? Sure. I think, I think that's, um, I think that's where the biggest growth demographically is. Mm. That's in the young, it's in the millennials, uh, people a little bit older than millennials. It's all the Jews who supported Bernie, all the Jews who are rabid fans of AOC, all the Jews who would have happily voted for Elizabeth Warren if she had been the nominee. And I'm not, you know, dissing certainly Elizabeth Warren and, and you know, even less, I mean, Bernie, maybe a little bit and AOC a lot. But I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a perfectly brilliant, upstanding person about whom I agree about, with whom I agree about certain things, disagree about, oh, that's all good and well. But I think the, um, the number of young Jews who were so passionately aroused and, and, and kind of invoke, involved in the political process because of that swath um, that's the growing swath. I mean, Joe Biden is kind of the last gasp of, I mean, look at Kamala Harris, right? I mean, you know, very, very impressive woman in a gazillion different ways, but she's not where Joe Biden is on some of these issues. She's downplayed the differences because of the ticket. But, um, like you what? know, if he, oh, I think economically, she's probably um, more liberal than he is. I think on Israel, she's not in the same place that he is. Um, you know, she's from California. We're from California. A lot of people who kind of know her and respect her enormously, but think that her instincts are, are not necessarily where Obama was. Um, and I'm not one of those people, by the way, who thinks Obama had it in for Israel. I think Obama made a lot of mistakes about Israel because I think he didn't understand certain kinds of things. I think that was partly um, his growing up in Indonesia, which is the most moderate Muslim country on the planet. And I think on a certain level, no matter what anybody told him, he kind of thought, I get Muslims because I lived among them, but he didn't actually live among these kinds of Muslims. He lived in a very different world. But be that as it may, that's, you know, water under the bridge. I think she's in a different place. So I think the, the Jews that you're talking about for whom Israel's not an important pillar of the bridge, um, I think that's a growing number. And I'm not sure what the percentage is yet. I mean, I think that if you look institutionally at America, you're right, those people are a minority. Yeah. Um, but are they really them? Are they statistically a minority? I I just don't know. And are they going to be statistically a minority in 20 years? I really don't know. And I think for them, if I was, you know, a, a young, let's say a young rabbi starting out in America now, um, my worry would be 20 years from now, um, if Israel is not an, a vital part of the picture and I'm in the non-Orthodox world, so observance is not a vital part of the picture, then what's the substance? Now, what we get is obviously, you know, we want to make the world a better place, tikkun olam and all that. The problem is the church across the street is doing tikkun olam and the mosque down the road is doing tikkun olam and people of no faith whatsoever are doing tikkun olam. I think the tikkun olam thing is going to burn itself out big time because it's a lovely idea that is exactly 0% uniquely Jewish, not not 0% Jewish, just 0% uniquely Jewish. And Kamala Harris is my point. In other words, what's Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah is either a miracle of oil or a military battle to fight Hellenism, or as Cecil Roth says, the first time that human beings ever went to war over an idea. Hmm. They thought it was worth dying for an idea, which he says was the first time in human history. 
he's a better historian than me by a long shot. We'll just assume for a second that he's right. So Kamala Harris, as you guys probably saw, and all of our listeners, watchers, readers, vibers, whatever, can, uh, can you know, Google this. Um, she and her husband uh, got on, um, got on, I guess, Twitter a couple of weeks ago, Hanukkah time. Um, and he says to her, you know, what do you love about Hanukkah? First of all, she's not Jewish. Why should she love anything about Hanukkah? Now, you've asked me, what do I love about Christmas? I mean, sales. Right. But I mean, um, I can't get to them anyway. But right. But I mean, I don't love anything about Christmas. I respect Christmas, but I don't love anything about it because it's not my holiday. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of weird. What do you, Kamala, what do you oh, love she, about Hanukkah? She's lived in a house for the past 10 years. OK, fine. Assuming okay, it fine. celebrates Hanukkah. But OK, uh, but, uh, okay but fine. Anyway. I'll, I'll grant you. I'll grant you that one. I just thought the question was a little odd. Yeah. But then what does she say? Of course, she said it's about bringing life. It's about tikkun olam. Well, that's the American message but that's not what is about but we've gotten to a point where every single thing in judaism yeah. that is worthy of a, of applause you know of, of being yeah. embraced is is about tikkun olam at the end of the day that is going to become too it's just going to be so thin content wise yeah. that i think it's not going to it's not going to pull jews in so i think there's going to be jews who are going to be like the ones you're talking about we'll call them the safari jews for a second right they're going to be the small minority and you're right that there's a lot of it's an explosion but it's an explosion of a very small group, which is becoming much more intense. It's critically important and it's awesome, but it's a small percentage of the American Jewish pie, right? And I think a large percentage of the American Jewish pie is gonna remain observant. There's gonna be some part that'll remain nominally observant or non-observant, but deeply invested in profound Jewish study and engagement and so on and so on and so forth. Um, some right now is also Israel oriented, but that may shift as the conflict subsides. But then there's going to be a big swath that none of those things speak to them. And I don't know how they're supposed to make a case to their kids that this is actually something that matters. And I think you have to, you know, the smart money on that big swath is that a generation or two from now, uh, it's mostly gone. And I think that nobody who cares about the future of the Jewish people should say that with any satisfaction or any triumphalism. I think you should be brokenhearted about it. But if you're going to ask yourself of the 5.5 million American Jews that there are approximately right now, give or take, depending on how you count, um, what percent, you know, how many of those families are still going to have, you know, substantially Jewish content and structure and meaning and whatever two generations from now? I don't think the smart money is on most of them. Well, there's a re there's a reason why I think the American Jewish population hasn't hasn't really grown in, in about 30, 40 or 50 years. Um, it has to do with low birth rates, but it also has to do with. With that, uh, we actually had uh, Hebrew national hot dogs. Hebrew national hot dogs. We actually had uh, uh, Professor Rabbi Jeffrey Wolf on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about Hanukkah, and and we talked about kind of this, the, you know, the the way it's viewed in Israel and the way it's viewed traditionally in Judaism versus the way it's viewed now. You know, this kind of the light, the miracle, kind of. Uh, uh, you know what though, it at the end of the day, and I'm gonna borrow I'm gonna borrow a sentence from uh, my colleague and French Mul Rosner. Um, at the end of the day, Judaism is what Jews do, you know, and he brings the example that, you know, and if you come to Israel uh, and if you ask the average Israeli, what do Jews do on Yom Kippur? Benny, what do your kids do on Yom Kippur? They want to go outside and ride a bike. They ride a bike. Okay. So if you go, if you're an alien and you come down to Israel on Yom Kippur and you say, what do most Jews do on this day? Do they go to shul or do they ride bikes? The majority of Israelis are riding bikes. So clearly this is what Jews do. So if the majority of Jews, or at least the majority of American Jews, and, and the majority of Americans who, who are exposed to Judaism because you have such high-profile you know, interfaith couples like, like Kamala Harris uh, and, and her husband, 
are coming out and saying Hanukkah. It's about lights, about miracles. It's about you know nice and fluffy and whatever. Does that change the holiday? I mean, you have kind of the um, of course it does. It changes it. It cha- you know at the end of the day, Judaism is what it's, well, it's, it's but it, and, and it I don't, isn't, I don't, it isn't, I don't because, like it because I'm a purist. I, I I happen to be one of these traditionalists. I happen to be one of these people that say no. The the texts say this. Chazal, the rabbi, but this said is, this. No, I, I, so that's what it is. But at the end of the day, if if ninety out of a hundred people say no, it's A and not B, then it becomes A. Yeah, but is, okay. Here, here's my point about this. You're right that Judaism is what Jews do ultimately, but because of what we were mentioning earlier about us being a a people and having a history, what that is doing, if you're taking away the history of the holiday or the 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 you know the institutional memory amongst Jews of what actually transpired and happened in history, you're becoming, in my view, there's the, there's a lot of revisionism taking place there. Oh, time. And, 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 and therefore it's like, I'm not saying I like it. Are the, are the, are the Jews being, I mean, they're, they're still practicing their Judaism in the way that they're now defining it, but, but it's go to America. It's not what it was. Go to America and ask the, the vast majority of people celebrating Christmas in one way or another. What's Christmas about? A time of togetherness, cheerfulness, etc. How many of them are actually celebrating the birth of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm assuming far less than, you know, a small minority of the people who are actually celebrating the holiday. Far now, less, by the way, than the priests would like. I mean, they think that the commercialization of Christmas has been a disaster religiously for them. Probably has. So, I, and, and Hanukkah, in that sense, there, there is a, a silver lining here. Hanukkah has become an American holiday. It's, it's, you know, it's become in the pantheon of American holidays. Everyone knows what Hanukkah is. Maybe people don't know the meaning of it or the origins of it or the history of it, but everyone knows Hanukkah, this candle thingy, you know, uh, dreidels, yeah, but so what? fried food. Everyone, that, but so what? Wouldn't you rather, it's an wouldn't, you, story, wouldn't you rather that it? less Americans n- celebrate Hanukkah than more people actually understand the authentic history of the occurrence? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I would. What, what are your clearly, thoughts, that's Daniel? my. What are your thoughts on this, Daniel? Well, I think obviously it's it's super super complicated. I'll go back to your bike riding on Yom Kippur thing. I mean, you're right, right? An alien comes down and looks at Israel. You know, okay, nobody, everybody bike rides, so therefore the cars stay off the street. That's what they probably assume, right? <laughs> Everybody's bike riding, so the cars have to be off the street, and therefore the I alone is 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 bereft of cars. Um, Here's the thing. I mean, you know, I thought that the first year that I was here when I saw that, I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I mean, I was on my, I saw it on my way back from Shul, right? But I thought, oh my God, that's actually totally cool. But here's the thing. It, it can't sustain Jewish meaning, but it doesn't need to sustain Jewish meaning because there's a gazillion other Jewish things here that are happening that are deeply profound. In other words, ironically for those kids, Yom Kippur doesn't evoke nearly the spine-tingling sensation that Yom Azikaron does, that Memorial Day for Israeli soldiers does. And when you stand for the siren, is that a national, a nationalist movement or, or a religious movement? I think it's both. No. I think I think Shmuel Rosner points this out. I think that you've you've melded it there. He calls it Israeli Judaism, and of course, hashtag Israeli Judaism because we're in the 21st century, so everything of import has a hashtag at the beginning. But um, I don't know why you guys didn't call this, you know, hashtag Jewans. But in any event, um, you should, you know, next time, think about that. You'd have to put a little hashtag under all those little balloons. But okay. Um, but I think, you know, I don't say it doesn't matter to me. 
But if I look at Israeli, I'm actually very, very bullish on on Jewish uh, on Jewish substance in the state of Israel because I think what's happening is people are rediscovering it here too outside the religious yeah. community. But they have the linguistic skills. They speak Hebrew. Mm-hmm. They can open up a text. They can read. It's a whole different. It's a whole different ballgame. My wife and I attended, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, a really interesting Yom Kippur. Somebody called me up just a couple of days before Yom Kippur and said, "I work with this group." And it meets during the year doing all kinds of stuff. But there's a whole bunch of post-army kids who are totally not orthodox. I mean, by far, they're not orthodox. And it's Yom Kippur, and they don't want to go to the beach. They don't want to go to the beach, but they don't want to, they don't want to go to shul. That's not their thing either. They want to have a meaningful Yom Kippur, whatever. So I'm going to bring them all to this kibbutz. And I want you to come and give a lecture or two here and there. And if you need to go to shul, there's a religious kibbutz just down the road. You can go to shul there. It's all good. We go there and I actually went with the kids, you know, these 20 something year old kids for Kol Nidre on the night of Yom Kippur. And they handed out these, you know, Xerox little booklets. And all these kids were singing huge parts of the liturgy. They're not religious. I bet you most of them had never stepped foot in a synagogue on Yom Kippur. But it's in the air here. You know how to sing Kol Nidre because you hear things on the radio. You hear it at concerts. You hear it in Israeli music. You know, you hear the Banai boys. You, you hear all kinds of stuff and it's making its way in. Um, so I'm very bullish on it here. And so when I see kids riding their bikes on Yom Kippur, I'm not worried that they're going to float away from the Jewish world because the army is going to keep them in the Jewish world. Uh, the the the, the rhythm of Friday afternoon in this country is going to keep them in the Jewish world. If they want to say Saturday night, you know, let's go on a date Saturday night. There is no way to say that in the Hebrew language, except for Motzei Shabbat. There's just no way to say that except for after Shabbat. You know, there's just no way to do that. Whereas if I look at American kids who think that Hanukkah is about bringing light, like Christmas is about bringing light, like Kwanzaa is about bringing light, then I think to myself, eh, like, okay, it's nice. And I'm glad that it brings them a warm and fuzzy feeling, but do I think it can sustain Jewish identity and belonging for another generation or two? I don't. I don't think it can. And I say that with great, with great sadness, but I've, I've felt that for a while and I haven't seen anything to disabuse me of that position. Well, I, I had uh, interesting conversations with a lot of these rabbis and the, these frameworks that I talked about, uh, Michael Levy and, and, and these kind of people. And, and right, he's I, great. I, I, and we're going to get him on the show, by the way. Um, he's he's fascinating. Um, so stay tuned in February. Um, I asked a lot of these rabbis, and, and I, you know, one of the things I did in my interview process was um, I wanted to know if Israel was disappearing. And, and I kind of mentioned this earlier: if Israel is disappearing in their communal life, because you know we've kind of mentioned a lot of, you know, for for a lot of Jews, the protecting Israel, the defending Israel, is their mainstay. That's their connection. That's their religion. For other Jews attacking Israel because of the injustices, that's their Judaism. You have a lot of people who don't really care. And I wanted to know, are we seeing now a trend of a Judaism developing and what would it look like? All of them told me that Israel is an important part of their brand of Judaism, whatever it is they're forming, of their communal life, of their synagogue life, whether they're more critical, whether they're more engaged, more supportive. Um. So, so I thought that was interesting, but yeah, what what does the Judaism look like without Israel in it? Um, you should ask Amichai. I mean, obviously he knows Israel very well. He's Israeli born and yeah. all that. But um, 
That's an, I, I, I don't know. I'm not terribly, I'm not, I'm, I'm just curious what, what that could look like from the, the, from the point of view of, of a rabbi um, trying, trying to do that. Um, but you know, one thing that popped up when I talked to a lot of these, and, and by the way, David Ingber, for example, at Roman Mu is doing some really interesting <laughs> things where his community is, is completely open to non-Jews. So it, it's kind of like a mix of Judaism, Jewish texts, Hasidut, um, Eastern religion, Eastern meditative practices, and then it's open to Jews and non-Jews and, seek, and spiritual seekers alike. So that's really interesting. I, again, I don't know how sustainable it is um, in, in the long run. You wrote in this article, this mosaic piece, how America's idealism drained its Jews of their resilience. Something I had a little bit of an issue with, um, and I wanted, you know, I was discussing it with Benny earlier. Um, you kind of, if I understand your point correctly, is that Americans and then by extension, American Jews haven't known enough hardship. And so they're not resilient. And because they don't mention, you know, Tachanun and these kind of parts of the liturgy that talk about remember Jewish hardships, does this mean that you think sustainable, resilient Judaism and resilient Jews have to constantly be in this woe is me mindset for it to succeed for it to thrive or for it to continue at least not an entirely woe is me but it can't only be that judaism is about making me feel good um in other words there is there is sadness in life we all experience sadness in life and there's there's sadness in national life also but um you know purim has survived in the liberal world but tisha B'Av has not survived mm. and pesach has survived but obviously you know Purim survives, but the fast of Esther doesn't survive. We just finished Asara Batevet last Friday. Did I, was it the most meaningful day that I'd ever had in my life? No, it wasn't. But um, thank God it was at least short. But um, but I think that there is a part of, um, you know, sort of yappy clappy Judaism, which I, you know, is an unfair term. But I think there's a way in which I think that that doesn't prepare you. It doesn't prepare you, first of all, to feel comfortable when Israel faces these moments of heartbreak. And when you're in, when you're in hardship, you sometimes have to do pretty extreme things to get out of that hardship, right? I mean, if you're in a war in 2014 and people in State Road are being shelled, you're going to have to do some pretty nasty stuff to stop that. Um, that's just part of the ugliness of, of life. But if, if Judaism is about getting together and feeling good and helping the world, it doesn't fit. And I think it proves not resilient. And I started out that piece, as you know, by, by pointing to the fact that... Um, you know, in, in Israel during the Intifada, when these restaurants were blown up, they opened up six weeks later and they were packed. And a lot of people went back to the same tables they'd been at. They thankfully weren't hurt to kind of prove that even in the face of this. And then you have this rabbi in Muncie in the attack in December of last year, just about a year ago now, um, where, you know, after the ambulances had carted people away, uh, he said to them, go to next door to the shul. And there's this unbelievable Twitter thing, which I linked to in the article, to these people singing literally after the bloodbath of a few minutes earlier. Whereas, and again, I say this with no criticism implied whatsoever, and every community is going to respond to trauma differently. The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh is still not open. And it, it, there's no plans to open it until they can completely gut the inside and, and make something different out of it so that people don't have to confront the horror. You now, think I understand. Sorry, just do you think it would be open if COVID didn't happen? No, no. Okay. I mean, did you see the no, response? They, they've they've, they've response said explicitly. They've said explicitly that they want to reshape it so that it's not so anguish-filled to go back inside. Um, COVID, COVID is 
you know, nine months old, the, the tree of life thing is two years and more. Um, so, you know, I don't, you know, I think COVID has probably hampered lots of things, but I don't think that was that. And again, you know, tree of life had financial issues even before the attack. This is not all about this, but that's what struck me about it. Like, my God, how come in Israel we bounce back and how come in that ultra-Orthodox community we bounce back? We're in tree of life. It's still, it's still, and we can't reopen it until it doesn't confront us with the horror. That's why they want to gut the inside and make something new. But I actually think that we, we, we sometimes need to be confronted uh, by the horror. There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times came out just in the last couple of weeks um, about family narratives. And people have gotten more interested in it because obviously we're all thinking about resilience, right? I mean, we're all struggling. You know, some of us, you know, have parents who are aging and are alone. Some of us have our gyms closed, which is of course much more traumatic. Um, I know that, I say that with a hope, with a broken heart. Um, uh, but, you know, everybody here has had to find resilience in some way. Some people have had to find it financially. Some people have had to find it in terms of health and physical recovery. Resilience is very much on our minds. And it, it brought back this researcher's work from Duke, um, who did a lot of work after 9-11, which is already, you know, a bunch of years ago, right? For people my age, it seems like yesterday, but um, for people your age, it seems like a really long time ago. Um, and they, they looked at which families were able to recover more from the trauma of this in, in whatever way they were traumatized. And they had what they called three different kinds of family narratives. One was a positive narrative, which was, you know, my parents came for and they worked hard and we built a business and now we have three cars and a big garage and life is all good. They did not fare well after 9-11. And there was also kind of this my grandparents, you know, were fine. And then, you know, your, your father became an alcoholic and then we lost our house. Everything is shit. And, you know, all of a sudden they didn't fare so well either. But there was what they called an oscillating narrative where, where families had a notion that we've had our good years, we've had our bad years. And these people in the family were very successful. These people really struggled mightily. Sometimes were able to overcome it and sometimes weren't. And to raise kids in this kind of oscillating narrative, this researcher at Duke argued, made them better prepared to recover from 9-11. And I think that there's a certain amount of similarity to what I was saying here. I don't think that Judaism is doom and gloom because it's still going to have Pesach, which is a celebration of freedom. And it's still going to have Hanukkah, which is a celebration of victory. And it's going to have Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And it's going to have lots of things. It's going to have lots of celebration. And Jewish life has to be about joy. But when you can't say Tachanun or Avarachamim or observe Tishabav, or think seriously about why the fast of Esther comes before the celebration of Purim, and so on and so forth, then I think what you're saying is I want a religious tradition that's going to make me feel good. Well, I want lots of things to make me feel good, um, but not very many things in my life that are really important to me only make me feel good, right? I mean, I adore my kids, and most of the time they make me feel great, but sometimes they don't. Because I'm, no, but seriously, because I'm worried about them. So like my kids are all grownups, they're all married, they have kids, whatever. But, but I worry about them and that does, that's not a good feeling or if they're having trouble at work or they're having trouble in whatever ways, right? It's not a good feeling. I don't expect my love for my kids to always provide me with warm and fuzzies. And I've been you know, married, thank God, to the same woman for 40 years. We like each other a hell of a lot. We've even found what to talk about for nine months in this apartment together. It's kind of unbelievable. Um, There's been no but marriage. I obviously, you know, no, <laughs> you know, no marriage is, you know, oh, honey, you're perfect all day long. And I think that if that's what it was, I wouldn't have grown at all because part of what you want is from a person that you respect to tell you you're really screwing up and you could be a much better person than you're being in, in this area as a father, as a 
friend, as a whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that that's part of life, and that's an important part of life. I think the things that matter to us don't always make us feel good. And if Judy is supposed to matter to us, it should make us not always feel good. And that's what I was trying to argue in that art in that article. That's, it's really interesting. Um, first of all, I want to say to those uh, listeners who are listening live, um, you're welcome to drop questions uh, and comments uh, in the uh, in the comment section. Hopefully, we'll get them. We've had a few issues with that. Um, when I first read the article, <clears throat> my initial thought was actually, I was surprised, uh, having read your your work in the past, I was actually surprised by what I thought you were saying. Um, because because the, the woe is me, everyone's an anti-Semite, uh, Israel's in danger, the Holocaust could happen again and only happened recently. Um, you, you know, and of course, I'm, I'm, you know, caricaturizing it. Um, that doesn't seem to work with American Jews because Americans totally Jews, not, they, you know, certainly non-Orthodox American Jews. Say, okay. Why do I need this? If this is all about Judaism, it's all about survival and fundraising for, for these things. And, and I thought you were saying um, Judaism that doesn't do that can't hang on. And what you're saying is actually something else um, that that's, you know, um, getting me to think in a much more nuanced perspective on this. You're saying, or a nuanced Ju- Ju- uh, perspective. Um, you know, what um, what I'm starting to to realize what you're saying here is that, um, yeah, it's not all about feeling good all the time because life itself is difficult, and so we need to be able to have the tools and the guidance to manage those difficult moments. And I think your example of a family or of a marriage are, are really good examples in that sense. Um, and, 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 and so this, you know, I don't know how to build it. Maybe you do, but, but I'm not sure how to build what you're saying, but, but it is interesting. And, um, I don't know, maybe the tree of life thing wasn't, I don't know if that, that was one example, but by the way, you said it hasn't opened yet. The thing that I thought of when you mentioned tree of life was that the immediate, Immediately after that, there was a giant campaign across all of America of, um, what was it, stand up for Shabbat or come out for Shabbat or wh- whatever that hashtag was. And you had people. Was that, the, was that related? I think it was. I, 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 think, I don't know. I don't I remember anymore. We had a, we had a friend uh, from the AJC, and I think they organized this national campaign, um, um, you know, come out for Shabbat or whatever it was. Um, and that's kind of what touched me in, in that, you know what, I saw, I saw an American Judaism and liberal society in America being more resilient than I think we give them credit for. Uh, and I think some of the people that responded to your Mosaic uh, piece within, within Mosaic um, ha- had written something to that extent. Uh, I want to throw- Well, if they didn't agree with me, I didn't read the comments. I wouldn't really know what they said. <laughs> Never read the comments, man. Just... By the way, in Mosaic, that's not the case because people really are very thoughtful and it's really worth reading the comments. But in general, as you guys know, you know, you put something out in, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll just leave them unnamed. Most of the people in the world who go on, a, on, the, <laughs> on the internet and, and write comments are people that have way too much time on their hands. Right. And you have to kind of wonder why they have too much time on their hands. Just, yeah, just saying. By, by mosaic comments, I meant the, the actual authors who were writing follow-up. Oh, oh, those were fabulous responses. Were. I mean, they were really fabulous. Uh, Rabbi John Moskowitz wrote. Um, yeah, there were some really, yeah, really fabulous things. Right? I learned a lot from all of those responses. Yeah, they were really great. That's incredible. I, I want to throw, I, I mentioned we have uh, live listeners, and I want to throw a, a question. It's better than dead listeners, no? Yeah, right. I mean, if, if they can register for elections, uh, to yeah, vote, I was going to say, they can, yeah, exactly, they can right. 
if they can vote, they should be able to watch your podcast. That's right. And, uh, and, and donate to our show. Um, so question here from a guy named Bob Pfefferman. I don't know who he is. Do you know Bob Pfefferman? Some Jew. Some Jew in America. <laughs> so uh, he, he's my dad. Uh, and, he, and he's a Jewish professional and an educator. So he says uh, there was the he, Pfefferman family in uh, in Transparent, right? Wasn't the that's central right? R- right. Yeah, no yeah. relation. <laughs> you totally, no relation. <laughs> you totally say that they're related. No relation to the fictional family, <laughs> the uh, the transvestite and the uh, whatever it was on. No, uh, it wasn't a transvestite. Be fair, but okay. I, I didn't. It was it. actually a great show. It was until he got outed as having done some not okay things. It's actually a really beautifully done show. That I have to say, I think led a lot of people to look at the whole trans community in a much more open-minded kind of a way. Um, I actually thought it was very moving. And the last season I could have done without, but I actually learned a lot from it. But anyway, let's get back to the fact for a minute. That's in, in in real life. That's right. My my wife watched it and she enjoyed it very much. Um, so so he's asking how you think we should be explaining Zionism to young American Jews in a way that resonates today. I would, because of precisely the question of how it resonates today, and then I'll say something like it's a 1B, I think we should explain Zionism as the national liberation movement of the Jewish people, period. Because everybody else has got a national liberation movement, right? We're in, we're, we're, women are having a liberation movement, not a, not a national liberation movement, but the whole Me Too movement, which is way overdue, is about saying enough of that. That's ridiculous. It's, this is no way we want that to be done. The, the racial justice movement in America is actually a national liberation movement in the sense of, a, of an ethnic national liberation movement. Also, way, way too late, right? I remember taking my daughter to look at the Watts riots in, uh, not the Watts, yeah, well, they were downtown LA uh, in 1993, I guess it was with Rodney King, um, taking her downtown to see the devastation. And I remember my mother taking me downtown in Baltimore in 1968 to see the devastation. And now that same daughter having to explain to her daughter in Boston why all the stores in Back Bay are boarded up. I mean, it's enough already. I mean, it's been going on for a hell of a long time and I think it's way overdue. And Americans understand liberation movements, Me Too, um, racial justice, the LGBTQ movement, which moved faster than any other liberation movement in a very, very long time. This is ours. This is our way of saying also enough of that history, enough of running from continent to continent, from country to country, from whatever to whatever. We wanna live like everybody else lives, basically being responsible for our own destiny. And I think that is, that is not based on anti-Semitism, and it's not about a new Holocaust and it's just, it's what it is. It's a national liberation movement. And, and when Mr. Pfefferman asks, um, you know, um, how would I play it to, to people today? I, yeah, I get it. Um, you know, that's, that's that the national liberation movement lingo actually speaks much potentially much more like with a zing than uh, whatever, a or whatever. The other thing I want to just want to point out because you were, the question is like, what's going on today and how people look at Israel a little bit. One of the things that I hope may come out of the racial justice movement, look, I'm very, I'm, I'm passionately um, hopeful that this racial justice movement in America will make a significant difference. But I'm also a bit jaded because I've witnessed this time before um, and I've seen it die down way too often. Um, And I think that race, even if we make good progress here, and I really hope we'll make good progress here, um, it's race is still gonna be a problem that America is just not gonna be able to solve right now. We should not, not to say we shouldn't, we have to keep pushing all the time, don't get me wrong. But societies have 
problems that they can't fix. They just don't know how to fix them. And I wonder how many young American Jews who are busy complaining about the occupation, which I also hate, would be willing to say to themselves, well, you know what? There are actually problems that countries just don't know how to fix. I think most Israelis, I don't know what percentage, but most Israelis still don't like the idea of an occupation. I think that number is going down, by the way, and that's why time um, is not on the Palestinians' side, because there's more and more people that are saying it's fine the way it is, and they better get with the program. But I think that, you know, um, we just don't know how to fix it, right? Tell me how to get out of there and, and have the West Bank not turn into Gaza. And when I say to American, young American kids on college campuses or the kids of my friends who are now in their 30s, let's say those kids um, who are very left-wing and very passionate, whatever, I say, well, they say, end the occupation, da, 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 da. okay, fine. How? Mm. They say, well, you know, we don't get into the details of that. that oh, that's your yeah. problem. Well, okay, you know, that, that, that gets you a failing grade in college if you write a paper, end taxes, without explaining how you're going to pay for anything. No, I'm really very serious. And if I say to them, fix racism, and then I say, you know, give reparations. And then they say, well, who gets it exactly? And I say, I don't know. You just fix that, Figure it out. right? That's just not serious. So I'm hoping that at a certain level, young Americans have to confront the awful, horrible reality that there is this problem in America that nobody knows how to fix. Even the people that want to fix it, no. don't know how to fix it, right? Defund the police. So the few places that have done that, the deaths among African-Americans have gone way up. Gone up and they want but the they were actually put Trump. Yeah. Right, yeah. you know. So I think that I'm hopeful that if, A, we should talk about it as the National Liberation Movement of the Jewish people, but hopefully also speaking of the zeitgeist, maybe the huge problems that America has that it tragically doesn't know how to figure out how to solve might give people a certain amount of more understanding that we also have problems we don't know how to figure yeah. out. It's, it's something that I, I, I often say when I speak to groups and college students and, and non-Jewish Americans, you know, look at American movies, you know, American movies and American TV shows, or at least they used to, are very optimistic. The superheroes, right? There's always a happy ending, rom-coms. Well, that's what I was talking about in that article, by the way. Uh, right, that's right. American and, culture. That's American culture. Right. That, that, that amazing positivity of American culture imbued in the in the American culture, and you see it in pop culture. And if you look at maybe this is why I don't like Israeli TV shows so much, even though they're very well done, because they're so gray. They're so they don't have a happy ending. There's always that because that's reality. But yeah, I mean, it's real. That, that that's a real thing. Right. And 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 that's you know you know, something that I guess is is really imbued in American culture is everything's fixable. Everything has a solution. Everything should have a happy ending. And, and in truth, it doesn't. Well, look at how many people look at the look at the end of 2020 as the, the answer to all of their problems or the election of Joe <laughs> Biden or, 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 or on the other hand, from from the right, the, the reelection, if it would have happened of Donald Trump, everything would have been a OK and, and, and returning. Uh, a new yeah, page. And maybe and, that's, you know, a you know human, the happy ending. They want to see it right. in that in that lens. And I guess. Uh, it's a whole different philosophical discussion we can get into here. You mentioned, you know, solving the Palestinian issue, which you'd like to do. You famously had this uh, kind of ongoing dialogue with Peter Beinart, right, um, for a long time. You did a podcast with him, right? I did. Yeah. And uh, and Peter Beinart. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and all your favorite podcasts. <laughs> just plugging. Uh, you know, no, I'm not. Believe me, I'm not plugging that one anymore, and I'll probably explain why when you ask your question. So, 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 Peter Beiner, for those who aren't familiar, was always kind of this intellectual of the 
the left kind of liberal wing of the Jewish community in America. And he was always critical, but, but supportive of Zionism. And then earlier this year, he broke with Zionism and came out in favor of a one state solution. You wrote actually a very eloquent response to him, you know, if I recall correctly, or maybe I'm confusing the various articles I read about it was kind of more like, who are you who gets to decide what happens to the fate of Israel? Um, you know, what, first of all, what do you see? How do you see the Palestinian issue? Um, we touched on it just now. And, and I don't know if you want to address the whole kind of Beinart issue. Uh, you're welcome to do that. Well, I mean, obviously, it's an enormously complicated question with a, a gazillion different angles. I mean, Peter and I, um, Peter and I did this did this podcast a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, I forget exactly when. Um, and it was sponsored by the Forward, which is you know kind of the paper, the newspaper of record of American Jewish life. And we don't agree about anything, but what I think we were trying to show people is that you can actually not agree about anything, basically, and still have a very civil conversation one with the other. And I thought that it didn't matter if anybody convinced anybody of any position about anything, as long as they could watch two people speak to each other civilly, uh, episode after episode, that I think was actually, uh, you know, the main point of the podcast. At a certain point, you know, he wanted to stop it, so he stopped it. But um, I always said, you know, I don't agree with him, but I basically respect his position. I don't agree with it, but he's got a right to a position, whatever. But he crossed the line for me when he came out with this article, I don't know, about two months ago, three months ago, whatever it was, in which he said, basically, as you pointed out, uh, that he's given up on the idea of a two-state solution. He thinks it will be a one-state solution. That is... That is that is the end of the Zionist. That's the end of Zionism. Right. Um, and you have every right in the world to call for an end of Zionism, but then at least have the honesty to say that you're not a Zionist anymore. Yeah. And to say that, and, and if you believe that the future of the Jewish people is tied up with the future of a Jewish state, which I do, I just feel that the future of our people is intricately connected to the future flourishing of this state. So unfortunately, if you take that to its logical conclusion, if you believe what I believe about the future of the Jewish people, the future of the state, and Peter Beinart is no longer supportive of the idea of a Jewish state, then what I have to say is from my perspective, and I think this is a great pain, no, no cavalierness whatsoever, um, I think he's become an enemy of the people of which I'm a part. And um, shortly after that, um, a certain very prominent university um, wrote us both and said, would you guys appear on stage and you know, do a little thing? I was during, it was during COVID, so you know, stage would have been very digital, but you know, appear on a shared whatever. I said, no, I mean, I'm done. I've, I've appeared with him all kinds of places. We, we did Columbia University once. We did Harvard University once. We did um, a couple of different synagogues, I think. Whatever, because he's a smart guy and we don't agree. And it's fun to talk to people you don't agree with. Sure. But I would never appear with him again on anything. Um, just because I think they're, I mean, again, other people are welcome to. But I, um, as far as I'm concerned, once you say you don't think there should be a Jewish democratic state, then you're an enemy of the Jewish people, as I understand it. I know those are fighting words, but I, I, at the end of the day, we're right after Hanukkah. I think ideas are worth dying for, right? So there you go. Hanukkah is all about lighting candles, isn't but then, it? Was it? Yes, it is. And tikkun olam. That's right. What I'm listening to what you're saying is it is it is it more that or more that he was disingenuous about it? He presents himself as a friend of the Jews, so to speak. Well, I think he is a friend of the Jews. I mean, you know, my no, the, the Jewish the, shul, the, so of, the project of Israel. The, no, I think that he should actually come out and say that it's not a new form of Zionism. What he tried to do, but I don't know that it's disingenuous because he might have actually convinced himself of it. You know, that, that's the part that I don't really know. Um, you know, he tried to convince himself that when Herzl wrote the Jewish state, he didn't really mean a state. He meant something else. Now, by the way, that's true. But when women were fighting for the right to vote, that's all they wanted back then. 
but now they want something else quite rightly because the world has moved on, right? I mean, when, when African-Americans, you know, got the 13th, 14th and 15th amendment passed, um, that was good for them, it was a good start, um, but it's not nearly enough for what they deserve now. So it may be that what the Jews were asking for in 1897 when Herzl wrote the Jewish state or the 1896 when he wrote the Jewish state in 1897 when he had the first Zionist Congress, Maybe. I mean, you can argue, but let's just say even hypothetically, if you're right, that he wasn't looking for a state in the way that we think of state. Well, it's a, it's it's 125 years later. Right. And and the needs of the Jewish that was before the Holocaust. Uh, it was before yeah. massive assimilation of Jews all over the world. I mean, the world has changed. And and we and have also, a right to reassess our needs. And, and also, so what? Israel exists. We're here now. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. So how much do you want to turn the turn the clock back? So I don't know whether it's disingenuous uh, because I don't know what he you know, might have, but, but it's but it's it's fundamentally antithetical to the world that I have spent my whole life trying to build in terms of raising my children and living my own life and writing whatever I write and teaching whatever I teach. Just antithetical to my world. And there's no reason that I have to I would never sit on a stage with someone and argue about whether civil rights is a good thing or a bad thing. I would never sit on a stage and argue with someone about whether women have rights to equal whatever. It's just like not worth having that conversation. I think the conversation itself is is demeaning at best and immoral at worst. Right. Um, so I'm not going to have a conversation with somebody about whether or not there should be a Jewish democratic state. It's just not it's not a conversation I'm prepared to be a part of. Would right. you have that conversation with, with with a Palestinian or is it because he's Jewish that you don't want to have that conversation with him? That's a very good question. I think it depends. No, I think I'd rather have a conversation with a Palestinian about given the fact that Israel's here. How do we work this out in a way that meets the needs of both peoples? That's a conversation that I'm a thousand percent willing to have. I think also at this stage, the Palestinians have access to enough knowledge about the history of the Jewish people. You may have seen since you're so involved with the UAE thing, all the people from Dubai that came to Israel a couple of weeks ago, and went to Yad Vashem, and were profoundly moved. Yes, they were. I hung out with them. Some of them are friends of mine. Uh, Yeah, Uh, they were profoundly moved. I mean, for me to see a woman in a hijab wiping tears away at Yad Vashem, I mean, says many things, yep. but it also says that you don't need a tremendous amount of exposure to understand what happened to the Jewish people. So at this point, the idea that the Palestinians don't know is ridiculous. They, they, they know or they choose not to know. Um, so I'm not prepared. I guess the, it's an excellent question, Dan, but I think that I would actually probably say no. I'm probably not prepared to have that conversation either. Um, I think it's a worthy conversation about whether to have that conversation. <laughs> but... Um, my gut feeling at this moment is I certainly wouldn't have it with a Jew. Um, and I don't think I would have it with a Palestinian, but you could probably force me to rethink that. Maybe not change my mind, but rethink it seriously. And then, and then he also did, Peter had some panel with Mark Lamont Hill and Rashid Flayed about anti-Semitism. <laughs> right, right, right. By the way, about how to end, about how to end anti-Semitism. There, there, there's times when you actually see an ad for an event and you're not sure if it's a joke. Yeah, right. I mean, actually, I wasn't really sure. It came across my Twitter feed and I was like, oh, who sent this? Like, but it turns out, you know, I mean, there are certain things. I mean, how low will you go to be in front of an audience? Yeah. I mean, these are people that are not our friends. Right. That's that's where it felt disingenuous to me um, when he kind of went into that territory, because, you know, I, I think the debate between Israel and people who say they support Israel about, you know, what it means to be a Jewish state, Jewish and democratic. I think that debate within Israel is, is something 
that is worth having. What does it mean to be Jewish and democratic? Can you be? Can you be democratic? Because there are different models for for um, for statehood and for organizing, you know, your way of life. Um, what does it mean to be democratic? Can you be an ethno national religious democracy? Th- those are right. valid talking points, but um, this just seemed like it went too far. Um, and and you, when you're calling a country's question into existence, a existence into question. Thank you. Um, that that just seems like it went too far. Do, do you have thoughts? Kind of, we're in the wrap up phase here. Um, do do you have thoughts? Have have you given um, any thinking to what does Jewish and democratic look like here in the Israeli context? Well, of course, I've thought about it. I mean, every, I think anybody that lives here has thought about it. Um, you know, first of all, it's interesting. My my kids were very smart. Um, think that it is much, much more complicated than I think that it is, which is interesting. I mean, they think like it's actually always going to be a huge grind. Look, I think there's certain things that are very clear. I think Israeli Arabs obviously have every legal right and every moral right to every single thing that I have, right? I mean, uh, healthcare, housing, whatever. But I think there's really interesting questions. For example, um, what about this idea, which the Supreme Court has upheld, of um, basically Jewish only and Arab only communities where Jews can't move into the Arab communities and Arabs can't move into the Jewish community. Now in America, that's anathema, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot have a white only neighborhood. Yeah. You cannot own an only black neighborhood. Civil rights um, but You, you right. have them, but they're not legal. Well, correct. Or, or you shouldn't, they're not protected by law. I mean, in other words, right? But I think here, partly what this country is about is protecting the integrity of certain ethnic ways of life and certain experiences. Um, so I'm not, I think that's a really, really interesting question. Can there be, obviously there cannot be, I live in the Baca neighborhood of Jerusalem. If, if a Muslim family wants to buy the apartment next door, they have every legal right to do it. And that's totally fine with me. But if I had chosen to move to a Moshav or a, a, a Yeshuv of some sort, which was designed specifically to be a very intimate, close-knit Jewish community to raise my kids in a certain kind of environment, could I see an argument that that should be for Jews only, just like there should be certain communities where Arabs can raise their kids in a closely knit Arab community of their own choosing, whatever. I think that's a, a really super interesting question. Um, the Supreme Court has ruled on it at a bunch of times, never directly, but always kind of indirectly. But I think that that's an interesting question. That's going to be a hard one. Um, I think there's an issue of social contract here. In other words, one of the things we saw with COVID is that there were two communities here that were really very non-compliant. I mean, Israelis in general, I told you I was out today. I, I saw no sign of a lockdown. There was just traffic jams everywhere. <laughs> the place where I went, you know, there was a customer right before me and a customer right after me. Um, I thought it was like operating on the sly, but I was proven wrong. But in any event, right? But so Israelis are, are by definition non-compliant. But there were two communities that were like hyper non-compliant, right? The ultra-Orthodox community and the Arab community. Now, some of that is um, that they are both in certain ways, ideologically hostile to the idea of a Jewish democratic state, right? In other words, the, the ultra-Orthodox are hostile to the democratic side of it and the state side of it, and the Arabs are hostile to the Jewish side of it, less and less and less, obviously. And by the way, large measure because of COVID, because we see Arab nurses and doctors, and right. it's really kind of blurred some of those boundary things. There's a tremendous amount of gratitude on the part of Jews to all the healthcare providers who are Arabs, and it's really been a very moving thing. I noticed that, yeah. But part of it is, and some of it's poverty, by the way, right? Because it's just harder to isolate and harder not to have big weddings where your kids are going to get the money to start their lives off. That's what these are about. And there was, especially in the Arab community, 
The reason they keep having big weddings is that's because how that's how your kids get started. Everybody who comes to the wedding brings a check. Right. And people who don't go to the wedding, it's just their culture, don't bring a check. So the idea, our kids are getting married, but there's only 10 people allowed or 20 people allowed, but please support them the way that you would have anyway, just doesn't doesn't compute in the same way that we could say, you know, you're not on Zoom, you're in a different continent, but I'm thinking about you, so include me in your minion. We would say it, that that's not, that's not how it works. Um, so there were, there were also economic reasons for it, but I also would go so far as to think that we have to look at the question of, do those two communities actually think of themselves less part of the social contract because they don't do national service? And there is no reason that they shouldn't. There's no reason. In other words, you could do national service in the Haredi community. You can paint schools. You could tutor kids. You could do national service in the Arab community. There's lots of stuff to do. You have to go to the military necessarily. But I think the idea that Israel has left those people out of the equation for different reasons in each case um, of national service, that we've done ourselves a grave disservice. And we really need to think that through quickly. Again, that's going to be a tough one in a Jew, you know, Jewish democratic state to whatever. So I think it's complicated. But it's about, I think, respecting, it's about respecting the, not only the legal rights, but the ethnic dignity of all the various populations that make up this country, understanding that the ways in which an Israeli Arab is gonna be proud to be Israeli are always gonna be different than the ways in which I'm proud to be Israeli. It's interesting, right? my, to, uh, it's interesting you went to the, to the Jewish, non-Jewish side of this question. I was actually, in my head, I was going to the secular religious side of the question. Huh. And then that's kind of, um, I, you know, for, for me, the Jewish non-Jewish side has always been actually easier to solve. Um, and I, I think the secular non-secular thing is also not that hard to solve. I think if you look at what uh, Ruth Gavison of Blessed Memory uh, did with Rabbi Maidan, right. they came up with some pretty cool arrangements that I, and I think, by the way, as we all three of us know, because we're all in different places on this religious spectrum, so to speak, I think the word secular in Israel is a misnomer. There are basically no secular Jews. Right. There are Jews who are more observant and Jews who are less observant, but the secular Jews have lives filled with Jewish content. And they also want the public square of this country to be meaningfully Jewish in some way. They're not looking for this to be a Hebrew speaking Sweden, most of them, I think. So, um, no, you're right. I think, that, but, but, you know, for, for example, and this could be a whole different discussion civil marriage or, or non Orthodox, non Rabbinic marriage in this country. Should we have it? Should we not? What does it look like? Um, well, I perform them. I mean, I, I perform non-Rabbanut marriages, and the people whose marriages I perform know that they're not going to be registered in the Misrata Datot, but in, they, they, they fall into two categories. One category says, and as a matter of principle, we're not going to go to Cyprus because we don't want to register in any way. We don't want any part of the system. And the other part says, yeah, we don't want any part of the rabbinic system, but we want part of the state system. And they go to Cyprus or New York or whatever, they go to the Justice of the Peace and they got to think. But I, I, of course, think that there should be an end to, um, an end to the orthodox hegemony over religious life. Um, but again, you can't completely undo it. In other words, the state at the end of the day has to say, these people are Jewish, these people are not Jewish. And you can't have a situation in which anybody who says I'm Jewish is Jewish. I just don't think that that's, that's reasonable because then everybody that wants to make Aliyah under the law of return will say, I'm Jewish. You know, I also love Hanukkah. So I'm Jewish. And, and you have to have some standard. Now, what the standard is going to be is going to be complicated once you move from the standard that we have. So, but I still do think that you could, you could figure something out. I think at the end of the day, also, one of the grave reasons for this whole problem is the, the narrow-mindedness, the quasi-racism, the overt misogyny, 
of the ultra-Orthodox rabbinate in this country. Don't forget, it's been a very long time since we've had a modern Orthodox Jew, modern. But Rabbi, Rabbi Goren was what you would call today, sure, sort of, modern, right? Of Umi. Yeah. He was Datilu Umi, right? Um, you haven't had a Datilu Umi rabbi here in a very long time. And I think it may be Yossi Klein Alevi who makes this really interesting point, which I'd never thought about before I read it somewhere where he wrote it, which was that when the whole settler movement right, began in the post-73, more or less, the Gushamunim and all of that, that became the, the object of the passion of the national religious world. And they, and they kind of religious left religion. a vacuum inside Israel and the Haredim filled that vacuum. Absolutely. They have to fight for that territory back. But this is all manageable. This is all doable. Um, and I think for us, the great question is always going to be, now that we finally have our state and we're in charge, how do we at the very same time remember that we were also minorities for a very long time? How would we have wanted to be treated as a minority? Can we now do that? I think it's actually much better to have Israel with a substantial Arab minority than without. If I could, you know, wave a magic wand and poof, they all go to uh, they all go to Palestine, you know, the state of Palestine, wherever it'll be. Uh, we can leave that aside for now. I wouldn't wave that magic wand. I want that challenge of of respecting a minority. I want that challenge of not having absolute hegemony here. Um, I want the not the challenge, but the enriching experience of having a different culture here that I learn a lot from. Um, so I think this is all workable. I really, I really do. I think, not easy, but it's the conversation we have to have. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that point. Uh, it, it, it seems, and we had, uh, I guess, now retired MK Michal Cutler Wunsch on the show last week. Did she leave the Knesset? She left. The, she was. I, I, saw, I saw. She's not running again. She, uh, no, she's not running again. Excuse me. She's she's not right. yet Thank you for correcting me. She's not. not she's not running again with blue and Michal, white. Michal, don't worry. Don't worry. Right, she's one of the few people that did not resign the Knesset today. Right. Correct. Uh, one of the things that she was talking about and which resonated very much with both of with both Dan and I was that, uh, you know, perhaps this is the time more than any, any other time for Anglo Olim, you know, people that are English speaking uh, immigrants to Israel, such as ourselves, to really take up our proper place in the leadership of this country and to stop necessarily yep. wanting so badly to integrate into the, you know, normative Israeli culture and to really be authentic about who we are. And yes, we are from this Western tradition. We're from these, these you know, Western countries where we, we that value civil rights above almost every other value and that, you know, understand and, and have a more recent memory of what it is to be a minority and, 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 and the issues that funny might come accents. up. And they speak with very funny accents, but, but, but for real, like there should be some sort of a movement here where, where, you know, that's not something that you need to say, I'm going to give up my, my, my American ideals or my British ideals or my Australian. Do Australians have ideals? They do. Talk to Arson. They do. Yes, they close their country down when there's six cases of COVID and then they <laughs> lock it down for six months and there's no cases of COVID or whatever. Right. Um, um, they're, they're, they're smart. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Look, I mean, I think it's also very interesting like, you know, how Russians came to Israel as complete outsiders um, and, built, and built parties. And, you know, you saw Baalia and, and, you know, look at a Victor Lieberman and look at uh, Yuli Edelstein. Yeah. And Americans have, you know, you have Michael Oren, you have Golda Meir, you have a few um, and a few people that have been further down the list. The parents, yeah. But we have not as a as a community, we have not really done exactly what, what Benny's saying. And I think we actually should. I think you're right. I think, I think the three of us and Michal are going to go uh, start a new uh, party. <laughs> well, no, maybe the two of you and Michal. I, I, you know, I told you I got vaccinated. I'm old. 
Like I'm, uh, they're putting me out the pasture soon. It's all good. Rafi, Rafi Cohen, Gimlaim. There you go. I might actually, yeah, exactly. I'm going to vote either for the Gimlaim or the men's party because men are so, you know, oppressed in Israel. So I think that's, you know. <laughs> well, listen, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, and uh, we always we always like to finish up with like one sort of like a, a fun sort of a question. Um, and Dan's looking at me and he's saying, you know, book or, or TV or something like that. I'll, I'll ask a COVID related question since you're vaccinated now. What is the thing that you're most looking forward to uh, when uh, when COVID is less of an issue for all of us to doing? We're, we're, we're... And you already mentioned grandkids. So, yeah, the so. grandkids have to be. We're not talking about grandkids. Oh, well, then we'll take uh, that as, as, as a given. OK, so I'll say one thing that I'm looking forward to. One thing that I hope doesn't change from the COVID times. How's that? Great. Uh, I think we're all hungry for friends. I think we're just we've learned in this whole thing, family aside, grandkids aside, we have learned it's like a physical need to be with your friends. Like if you're that tired, you just can't keep your eyes open anymore. Or you're that thirsty, you just desperately need a drink. We felt it physically. Like after that first lockdown, which we actually all observed, um, we just needed to be with our friends. And we used to do these quarantinis, you know, and it wasn't enough. It was fun. And we saw them and we got drunk way too many times. But um, no, seriously, I mean, it's like it's really bad. You stopped but, that, I'm still... <laughs> No, we actually have sort of stopped, but not by decision. I think we've gotten so drunk we've forgotten to drink. But in any event, um, no, but I think, I, I, I think we've learned um, how desperately we need the company of people that we care about. Um, and I look forward to that and you know, going back to the shuls that have not been able to meet and all of that kind of thing. Uh, the one thing that I'll say that I've been blessed with over the course of COVID and that I actually would like to try to hold on to is um, I haven't traveled at all. And as somebody who was constantly on the road, like with those war, road warriors, you know, had my seat on the plane and my, the, you know, I had my all, I was, I was in America 12 times a year, uh, you know, throw in Europe once or twice. Um, it's not a good way to live. It's actually really nice to wake up to the next same person every day. Um, and not to say this is the third of the month when I'm not home, uh, always be jet lagged in this way. And I don't want to go back to that. I, I've decided it's just, this was a very rude way of, um, being forced to see how terrible the way that was to live. Uh, and I know a lot of people like me who did a lot of traveling who saying they, they hope that they have the, the, the temerity to basically say, no matter what they dangle in front of you, this conference, that speaking gig, this, that, whatever, uh-uh, X number of times a year and, and not one more. So, so as a travel professional, and I know your wife is also in travel, I, I hope you're only speaking about work travel and not leisure travel, that you continue. I'm only speaking about Israelis going to America for work. People from outside of Israel should flog, you know, the <laughs> throngs. They should come over here. No, by the way, they really should. They really should. Those are not people that are making 12 trips to Israel a year. I'm talking about being away from your home a third of the time, like 100 days a year. It's just not a good way to live. But absolutely. I mean, I think one of the it's very important for American Jews. I mean, one of the one of the real wounds to the Jewish people in these last nine months has been uh, that all those kids that would have come for camps, all those kids would have come on birthright. All those kids would have come on Massa. All the families that would have celebrated here and whatever. I mean, that's a huge part of the building of American Jewish identity. And for that to be suspended is a huge wound on the Jewish people. So that has to be restored right away. And our economy obviously needs tourists of all different sorts, you know, from all around the world, 100%. I'm talking about those of us who, as professionals, spent too much time on the road. I think that COVID was actually a really important wake-up call to what really matters in life. And what matters in life is waking up next to the people that you love and being in your home and being in your community on Shabbat 
Uh, and I hope I can hold on to that. Amen. Awesome. Well, uh, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Gordis, scholar, author, writer, speaker. Did I miss anything from Shalem Khaled? That's, that's uh, check fine. out check out his latest book. I'm going to plug it for a third time. Invited. <laughs> Um, and all his other great books, which we only mentioned a couple of. Uh, you've, you've been quite prolific. Um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your time. We wish you well. My honor. A really fun chatting with you guys. Really great conversation. And uh, you're, you're welcome back. Anytime uh, you have a new book or something you want to talk about, uh, you're welcome back. I'll ping you. And like I say to Dan all the time, I look forward to being in touch with you once travel resumes about all the groups that you'll be speaking in front of. That's fine. And you guys let me know when you add the hashtag to Juans. Hashtag Juans. Okay. All right. Take All care. Right. And All right. Take care. Everybody. everybody be healthy. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning into this episode of Juans. Yep. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. Juans is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.